all want something. And we all want it all. Well, we're about to get it all. Now, yesterday I was supposed to do a show, but these past 48 hours have been insane. And I actually wanted to kind of say something. It's um, pretty interesting. With all these events that are unfolding, some people are starting to understand that everything has a purpose. There's a show that I did, I, I don't remember when, I mean, that amazing site that someone created called Tori Said, look it up, where I discuss the whole concept of Ourovoros, uh, not only through, uh, you know, more philosophical stance, but more so through a stance of mathematical precision. When there's a uh, overabundance, obviously kind of like a seesaw, you get to teeter-totter to one side more. Sometimes you just have to let people bake a cake, have it, and then attempt to eat it because that's how you win. Now, as I've said many times before, I'm the most impatient, patient person. And what's happening right now is evident, it's global. You know, they had to drop the indictment. Our nation is getting ousted in every corner. BRICS is announcing Iran is going to be in there. We've got the Sahar region completely in turmoil. We have the Nigerians, you know, that sent us all those Nigerian prince emails that are, uh, that are in the industry that is to be implemented. The Nigerians have sold out their own African people. But you can ask the Ghanis about that. And don't forget, it was the Nigerians that would sell their people more on the river than anyone else. I'm just pointing that out. No offense to Nigeria. Now, in this grand tapestry of our existence, there comes a times when the heavens themselves seem to tremble, when the divine patience is tested. And the celestial scales of justice are tipped that time is right now. I mean, our creator seems wary of the transgressions that have been committed. And his divine patience, I guess, which is a collective of your own, has reached its limit. And the veil that once shielded you from the stark realities of this world has not only been lifted, but has been shredded into pieces. And the gloves are off as we are standing on the precipice of a divine reckoning. And this isn't a time to fear. <laughs> well, many of you, if you knew what was coming, you probably would, but this is actually a call for action. This isn't the end of something, it's a beginning of something. See, 2030 has already been implemented. It was only back in uh, 2017, uh, when I got my galaxy that I had the whole Podesta wheel, the UN wheel <laughs> in my phone, 2017, not 2023, 2017. It's already been done. And in this new era that they're seeking rapidly to implement, the people are resisting globally. They're starting to see things. They're like, hey, wait a minute. In the past three years, suddenly, we're getting 
censored. We're not allowed to ask questions. What, what do you mean you're asking a question? Why don't you just blindly trust me to inject you with anything? People are dying. And those that have been injected, those that have been injected with the non-placebo are the ones that are not only scared, but they hate you too because you didn't fall for it. You know, it's kind of like, and then they're going to try to guilt trip you into survivor's remorse. This is fact. But what we have to remember is that we're not mere spectators in this grand cosmic drama, but the active participants, whether you like it or not, knowingly or unknowingly, you are part of this. And we are the actors on this stage. And it is our duty to play our parts with courage and convictions, not meekness and subordination to authorities that are arbitrary and don't exist. Now the road ahead this August is fraught with challenges. Storm. <laughs> well, you know, September, Florida, we got to really be careful. But it brings destruction, right? Remember, at the heart of the storm, at the eye of the storm, is where we see the calm, you find your still, and the true strength. And this is how you face adversity and discover what your true character is. Our nation is in trouble not just from outside influences and money and corporations, right? Or those selected individuals that play a role. It's in trouble by its own people, by the American people. That's the problem we have because they've forgotten how to be Americans. That's basically it. You know, when two years ago, when this BLM stuff was going on, I was like, you know, I, I had mentioned, Hey, you know, th th this is now and we're seeing it and these people are drinking that Kool-Aid, but the instigators, if you remember, were lawyers, were elected officials, were lobbyists that were handing bricks to children that feel that the world owes them. And let me say this straight. Do not for one reason think that I am diminishing what is a genuine issue in our racial issues within the US. You have to remember, even during COVID, who did they target? The minorities. And specifically the black American population. So it's not just in their head, right? It's a predisposition over decades of seeing them as subhuman, right? And we understand that there's remnants. And a lot of you are like, I can't identify with that. I can't either. Well, we have to objectively accept that that is indeed a fact, that it does exist. But if you noticed what I said back in the summer of love, hey, let, you know, they're burning the place down. They're telling us it's mostly peaceful protest, that there's no such thing as mobs, right? But they got caught. They got caught seeing that the people that were leading the movement were all about themselves. They got caught. And here's the thing. Now they're on our side. The people that were genuinely concerned with the disparities that we have amongst our ranks, and they saw the facade. Hey, we've got these granola-munching academics that are pandering to us and telling us how much, you know, uh, you know, they love us and they should elevate us and that we were slaves and we were wrong. Don't you get it? They're telling them all these nice things to then slaughter them. That's how you bring them to you. And they've realized it. And this is why they're standing now on the side of America.
Now, most people that have been arrested for J6 are innocent for, for the crimes that they're being told. But there's a lot that aren't. They were part of the orchestration. This is our moment as a people to push against the tide and start moving. And patience, my friends, is our greatest allies. Let this show unfold. That doesn't mean you sit back and relax. That means you file the shit out of FOIA. You know, I saw a TikTok someone made who finally somebody asked their union about their situation with their pension and they have nothing. I've been saying that for at least five years. I posted articles showing people that the coffers were empty. There are people relying on it. You think the government's going to bail you out? We're almost at a debt ceiling of 33 trillion. The minute 33 hits, that's the magic number. You can kiss that goodbye. It was simple. Send a letter. Ask questions. Because could you imagine if people in 2019, when I was screaming from the mountaintops, were all these alternative media that are just regurgitating and reacting? Had mentioned to the people, hey, guys, why don't you send out a letter to your union if you pay dues? And you have a pension. Ask them for the status of it. If that happened in 2019, 2020 would have never happened. This is why I'm pissed. Okay? This is why I'm angry. Just so people understand that. This is why I'm angry. Because the pain that many people are going through right now within our nation was unnecessary. It didn't have to happen. While other people may argue, no, it's necessary because they need to be pressured. I think knowing that their pensions are gone and that they're not going to have a retirement and they're going to be dependent to suck on the teat of the government that has already implemented laws saying that they should starve elderly persons so they can die faster, right? This is it. I did not want the unnecessary pain. But it seems that all these actors were swept up, and that's what the devil does. He makes evil evil, and he shouldn't identify evil as just one person. It's a collective. Evil makes you feel like you've been abandoned. So therefore, you react. This is why I say patience is important. And Evil also makes you feel like there's no one there but you. So you find camaraderie in anybody that seems to be popular, right? And that's key. You know, when I um, was fired, fired dead, right? Made up word. I, um, I wish my life had fallen apart completely. They destroyed me when they saw that I was coming with the appropriate way. It wasn't me just lashing. It was me making documentations, me archiving, me putting things into the record. Because like I said, the best way to get anything into the public is to do it through discovery, right? So uh, I remember thinking, holy crap, what am I going to do? And a God, after I was burnt down to the ground, gave me it's like a key like unlocking something like hey just ask do you want ask ask and you shall receive 
And the only thing I asked for was to make sure that I have a roof over my head. I can pay for my sources that I can and travel to my sources and I can file the shit out of court cases. And I'll have to tell you, actually, the other day I went to Subscribestar. I only pay out from there every now and then because I don't have a lot of subscribers. And I saw that people that had been subscribing to me from 2020, which was fantastic, decided all now in 2023, oh, you know, uh, your shows aren't every day, so I'm not giving you my $1, $5, whatever it is. And I'm thinking, what the fuck? I'm not the Tim Pool. I'm not the Joe Rogan. I'm not the people that have a team. I'm my producer. I am one person. I am one person doing all of this. I have people that I pay for, for, for editing. I have people that I pay for sources. But how can someone say that when I'm a one-woman band? And I realized, you know, in my anger, and it wasn't one, it was many, right? Many people say that. I got that shit on locals too. You're not on here all the time. And it's like, hmm, probably because I'm working. And so I'm, I'm, I was angry, but then I thought to myself, shit, I can't be angry. This is the way the population has been conditioned to expect things, right? And expect the most for what they provide and that's fact and i can't condemn them for that because i'm that type of person you take me to a restaurant and i get subpar shit i'll be like "Fuck you take it back i just spent five dollars on french fries they better be bomb diggity ass french fries because i could get a bag of potatoes for three dollars and do this shit at home do you see what i'm saying so for me right i understand it so but what i realized was holy shit this is the problem that people cannot see things that are going on behind. And, and the thing is, they never will. Most of this stuff that we're going to see that's happening is going to be happening in, in, in tribunals that are going to be out there publicly, right? Publicly, right? That's when you're going to start to see. There's so much happening. Guys, do you think it's a coincidence that they dropped the indictment? The minute the nations they created themselves bit them in the ass. Of course not. Of course not. Do you think that this indictment, which is fake, and that's the fear that I have while we want it to go through, because then we get discovery. He signed it as Jack Smith. This is a legal document. How many times? I have a funky first name. It's Terps Ahori. Do you think I sign my name as Tori Maris? Heck no, because that's not a legal document. I'm trying to tell you there's fails safes when they want to pull plugs. They raise you up to pull you down. Now, while many might say he's uh, been put his name like that as television and whatever that can actually fly, but in actual fact, if they want to renege and pull that case so there is no discovery, they can fucking say his name's not Jack Smith. I'm just telling you that is the word of law. Pay attention. And even and then you're gonna have to litigate a case that says, well, because it's widely known like this, it should be accepted. I'm I'm just telling you this to, to have that in the back burner. <laughs> Maybe not for this case, but there will be a lot of future ones. So you have to pay attention to that. Now, today I thought I can show you a little bit more into the J6 um production. 
I wanted to show you so you can understand just how much work, toil, and investigation has gone into this. Because <clears throat> you must allow people to show their hands, right? It's like, my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. Well, they just put their hand down. They're like, look at this. I got two pair. And this is where we need to come in with a full house. And I'm going to show you some of that now. We're going to discuss a little bit what's going on with uh, Niger, Burkina Faso, right? And then I thought for the intermission, we can see what the Hebrew text says about Genesis 1.11. And this was a, a very astounding analysis, more so because I don't see a lot of theologians, philosophers, or historians talk about the context of scriptures as historical documentation. See, the Bible never existed it was created as a historical record, right? Because before that, it was all word of mouth. So um, it's important that um, we kind of just take that, not because the person that I'm going to showcase, you know, this, um, you know, um, he's, he's actually quite intelligent, is 100% correct. But it's to provoke thought. You know, a lot of people don't like the fact that I'm kind of pro provocative in the things and, and, and how I probe and, you know, the zeitgeist, people lost their mind and it's like, why? Take the 40,000 foot view. Let all the pieces start clicking in and you'll get it. You have to take pieces from everywhere. That's the one way you can hide shit is by scattering out into the ether, right? And, and it's important that you are able to kind of like Magneto attract all the right pieces. And you can only do that when you can use your discernment. For in the end, everything will be restored and returned because the scales of justice will be balanced. This is the way it is. Out of chaos comes order and out of order arrives chaos. It's a urovoros. It's constantly going. There is a very uh, slight balance to this. And patience being our greatest ally. Let this show unfold. Let this divine plan take its course. For in the end, everything will be restored. I say this to myself every day when I am hurt that so many people are now hurting when it was something that we could have avoided. In 2019, if people actually got off their fucking asses and asked the questions about the unions and stopped throwing memes and getting obsessed with one, but actually laser focused on shit that could have toppled them. We wouldn't have even had COVID. That would have never happened. But it's unfortunate because, see, even when you do good, that can be abused. It's almost like drinking coffee. Coffee's fantastic, great for your liver. I'm a big proponent of it. Smoking is actually has health benefits too. Not many, but it does deter any foreign parasitic invasions to have good efficacy right? But too much of it can cause you issues. Can't breathe. You might, you know, have too much cell renewal that might get stuck on cancer mode, you know, stuff like that. Everything in moderation. That's necessary. We had no moderation. All of you know that. In 2018, we had no moderation. Everyone on supposedly the side of America, America pandered into Operation Gridlock, where they were following 100,000 accounts because, and they had 250,000 following them. It was complete and utter bullshit. 
and no one got the information they needed. You know, I um, was on Twitter earlier and I was just looking at things as I was, you know, piecing together, just quickly chopping up some of uh, the documentary to put out so I can provoke some thought into people and kind of reinforce, hey, you know, when we did the trailer, all those motherfuckers got rolled up, but you know, <laughs> everyone else is great. I, I, I saw that they told me that I wasn't eligible for ad revenue. I wasn't, I'm, I'm still pending my application for subscriptions, right? Um, because I've been choked on every corner. And suddenly it seems that in the past two months after they started shadow banning, I am no, I'm not eligible for ad monetization because my impressions were 4 million. Now they're only a million. And in order to qualify for ad revenue, you have to have 5 million in impressions. But here's the thing. Most of these people that are participants in ad revenue don't get impressions. So this is a big issue for me. I'm just saying for me, right? It seems that there's a teeter totter there and there are um, hindrances, but it is what it is. But as I was looking at it, I saw that we're, there is an attempt to push another operation gridlock and this is coming. And I want all of you that have Twitter, you know, to make sure you are following only the people you want to hear from, not just your friends or to make them feel better, just the news. When I say this, it's important. Make sure, I mean, some people might get butthurt, but if you think, oh yeah, you know, I like to follow what this idiot says. Well, you know, if you go to that idiot's page all the time, then just, you know, and, and you don't find them as a source of news, holy shit, what do I have to look at? Then simply, right, simply unfollow the person that you, I like, I like the Krassersteins, right? There's two of them. I only follow one. The other one, I really don't give a shit. The other one I do because they're pretty much in the know and, they're, and their pulse is on there. So I want you guys to understand that. You follow people that actually have something to say, not something to regurgitate, right? This is why Emerald Robinson is at the top of the charts in Twitter because she says what she wants to say. This is why Laura Loomer is at the top of the Twitter, you know, um, uh, impressions uh, game because people want to hear what she says. She's not a regurgitator. She's not a retweeter. She's not someone that's going to be like, oh, look at what so-and-so posted. You don't need someone to retweet shit you already follow. You need people that are giving you content. So keep that in mind. And that goes for all your platforms. Now, having said that, in, this in, this, in, in these trying times, we must not forget the virtues that actually define us as a people. Show mercy even when none was shown to you. Be kind even when faced with cruelty. Keep asking questions even when the answers are elusive. For it's these virtues that separate us from the entities in power who are violent, dismissive, and crave one thing, dominion. But remember this, dominion is not a right. It's a responsibility, right, I would say. And those who abuse the responsibility of power in speaking for the people face severe consequences. And one thing about justice is it always comes and it is relentless impartial and inevitable. So once again, 
stay true to your virtues, and focus on what is necessary. So I think at this time, I would like to share um, my little trailer that I just moshed up quickly for you. So um, let's see, where is it? Okay, is this it? Yeah, here we go. Please enjoy these next eight minutes. I hope you can see what I have been saying. Amy Harris is a Clarksville native turned freelance photographer. I've been out like a hundred protests. She says moments after the president. For the introduction. Um, as stated in the winter of 2020, I was working on a documentary. As part of that documentary, I filmed several rallies in Washington, D.C. on December the 11th and December the 12th. And I learned there would be a rally on the mall in, on January 6th. What you're saying is you filmed the meeting between Mr. Tario and Oath Keeper's leader, Stuart Rose, right? Indeed. You couldn't hear what was said, but according to the Justice Department indictment of Mr. Tario, a participant referenced the Capitol. A camera crew following Tario's movements shows him meeting friends before heading out of DC. For a misdemeanor. He was ordered to leave the city on the 5th. Well, your ass won't be coming back into D.C. no more. Hey, tengo mi carro no, I can't come back into right. D.C. How are you going to get out of D.C. Right here. I have no idea. Right here. What right car? Right here. And where's your stuff? Uh, I have no idea yet. We drove him to pick up his bags from the property department of the police, which is just south of the mall. Uh, we picked up his bags and went to get some other bags from the Phoenix Hotel where we um, encountered Mr. Stuart Rhodes uh, from the Oath Keepers. Um, by the time I'd gone to park the car, my colleague was saying who'd got into the car with Mr. Tario that they had moved to a uh, location around the corner, the parking garage of the uh, Hall of Legends, I believe. And um, so we quickly drove over there. Go down the block and make a right. And then on the left, down there's the a parking garage. Yeah, there's a parking okay, garage that's going to be on your left side. Go down the parking garage. Terrio gjorde dog et stop på vej ud. They weren't there for President Trump's speech. We know this because they left that area to march toward the Capitol before the speech began. They walked around the Capitol that morning. I'm concerned this allowed them to see what defenses were in place and where weaknesses might be. You just you're just kind of standing out here doing your thing. What are you waiting for? Like you go through here. They get enough people over here. I'm going through. What are they gonna do? Shoot? I doubt right. it. Keep an eye on the Proud Boys. Proud Boys are still just hanging out in the street over there. Put 
Дональда Трампу закінчити говорити, люди рушають на Капітолі і, прорвавши кордони, рушають одразу до сцени, яку тут звели, готуючись до інавгурації 20 січня. Перші затримання відбуваються одразу на наших очах. Here is how the unprecedented events unfolded. Around 2 p.m., protesters, many in Make America Great Again clothing, pushed through barricades. Approximately 1.30, protesters start clashing with law enforcement as they try to force their way into the building. Around 2 p.m., the gates on the east and west sides of the Capitol were breached. But scenes from the event seem to tell a different story. It appears that the protesters were waiting for the police. Additionally, there were dozens of journalists and cameramen from all the new public TV news outlets prepared to cover the events. And most ominously, a group of well-trained young men arrived to Maidan almost simultaneously with the riot police. They infiltrated the crowd and began provocations with insults, stones, and torches. So, uh, just so you know that the rendering that was done in regards to the maps, we have isolated every single person. You know, there's a there's a guy that I follow on Twitter on on TikTok. His name is Jose something. Gosh darn it! I'll post one of his videos. He um, urges people to send him a video that has non-identifying characteristics, just a regular video, and says, "Hey, Jose." find me i'll pay you so much and the guy actually finds the people with the most limited information that goes to show you just how much data is out there right that just goes to show you how much data is out there and we were able to put together the pieces if you guys remember one thing that i have said is that i participated in the orange color revolutions in Ukraine. I also participated in fixing their elections. So the model that they used in Washington, D.C. was identical to the one that I participated in creating for Ukraine. <laughs> but I digress. See, it takes a lot of time, but what you need to do is wait for the right time and every hiccup you know, of delay, you know, um, was, was, was put in, you know, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. And so creating 3D images like you saw running through DC, the streets where we were uh, showcasing that, that was recreated because this is how we put it out together. <laughs> Wait till you see just what a magnificent show. Again, I restate. In this grand show, we are the actors. We are the participants. Whether you like it or not, you can be a passive participant or an active one. You played a role. And it makes people angry when they realize that they have been taken for a ride. But blame no one but yourself. It sounds like Tracy Beans being upset. Trump endorsed the magazine. It's like Trump's not you. It's kind of like people getting upset with Krispy Kreme for offering free donuts for the vaccine, and now they're disabled. And it's like, you can't blame Krispy Kreme. You made the decision. You made the decision to follow people. You made the decision to follow them to wherever they were going. You made that decision. No one made it for you. You did it. Oh, but I was peer pressured. <laughs> well, then that means you're weak-minded. And we've all been there, huh? 
The peer pressure I have to resist is insane. Insane. But it's important that we understand where responsibility lies. And if someone duped you and you, you know, thought you were simply a spectator, right, in this grand cosmic drama and didn't realize you're an active participant, regardless of what your actions are, it could be just sitting on the couch watching TV. You're still participating. Whether you like it or not, you are in the movie too. So you can either follow the script that they expect you to do, or you can do the improv. Those are the funniest skits, by the way. Improv, right? So it, it, it's important for people to understand this because as I watch the news with the indictment, which I already knew was coming, hello, wait till Georgia pops, hello, there, you know, and, and, and it drives me insane. And today I dropped this, it's not for me, but for good people that are really struggling to get out of the loop of reactive reporting and actually doing homework. You know, there are so many times that I sit in, in, in chats um, of my listener base and I'm just like, damn, these people are so freaking smart. We still don't have 1%. We need that 1%. We need it, but they get it. And sometimes I even cry, literally, shed tears of, of joy that I'm like, okay, okay, okay. This is good. This is good, right? Because I have to pacify myself too. Because this is how frustrated I am. None of this had to happen. We didn't have to have COVID if people were not about self-preservation. None of this had to happen. If people you know, just did simple things, a simple email, a simple FOIA request, or getting together and saying, all right, what the heck can we do like to take this? But then you get people with pissing contests. I'm more smarter than you. I know this. I know that. No, I think we can reform the Republican Party. And it's like, do you understand? How do you reform monsters? Oh, well, we need to put good people in. They're not going to let you. <laughs> you know, they're not going to let you. I have people that have DM me. No, 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 We have to be against this with the abortion bill. It's like, fuck you. If people want abortion and they put it on the bill, then if the bill wins, then they win it. You're not the God of what gets decided. But at the end of the day, what you're saying is we should forfeit our right to stop abortion bills from going forward, which isn't even the case because it won't be affected with this. Right? So you're saying we should forfeit forfeit our rights, right? That would help us fix our elections. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. The most stupidest thing I've ever heard. Oh, oh, Tori. Uh, uh, um, um, um. No, it's fucking stupid. Because in our nation, if people want to say that, oh, we want to make a law that says that everyone wears, I don't know, New Balance sneakers, I'm just saying, right? And people actually go get signatures and they put it on the ballot. If your state decides that everyone should wear New Balance sneakers, then so be it. That is what a constitutional republic is. But you're going to say, but our elections are bunk. Oh, so then maybe the wise thing to do is listen to all these people, the GOP, that literally controls the DNC. Take those rights away from you to fix elections. 
And I say this because I think the people of Ohio, which is, it's, it's the start of it all. Have you seen how many businesses have migrated to Ohio? Have you seen now that China has sanctioned the United States? We're not getting geranium or gallium. We're trying to build a superconductor plant. Have you seen that the only state in the nation that has a World Economic Forum, forum partner as their unemployment division is leading the pack. People are just too fucking stupid to stand up on their own. They're kneeling like bitches. Kneeling like bitches. They want to believe, oh, the Republican Party will save us. No, they won't. The Democrats are making more sense than the damn Republicans right now. The Republicans are just forfeit your rights and we're going to make it harder. Harder? You know, when, when um, Gonzalez in Ohio ran, he ran and took money from everyone saying he was pro-Trump, right? They threw shit ton of money for him to get elected. And he swears in, and on that freaking day, he, vouched, he voted to impeach President Trump. Now, as a person that donated to his campaign, don't you want your money back? Of course you do. Can you do it? No. Can you remove him once he's been elected? Actually, no. He's got to be in office for a year. And as Congress, you get two years. So he's in office in a year. Then you can gather signatures to get him removed or <laughs> recalled. But by that time, you have new elections for him to either be reelected or not. This is why he stepped down, because he knew he wasn't getting reelected. His whole purpose was to come in, get everybody's money, file for the impeachment, and then bow the fuck out. That was his job. And he left with shit ton of money too. And none of you could do anything about it. And this is the problem, right? This is the problem that you're not understanding that right now what's on the ballot box in Ohio is taking away your voice even more. This is where they submit you to tell you, hey, you should just give us all the rights. Right. We need to raise the threshold because, you know, we can't have citizen led initiatives because then, you know, the Democrats have a shit ton of money. Actually, the Democrats have zero money right now. The Democrats are poor because they expended all the money in 2018 from your fucking pensions. Amalgamated Bank is shutting down because behind the scenes they're being persecuted. But no one wants to talk about that. I'm the only one talking about that. The only one. And then you're going to be like, holy shit, so stuff is happening. Yes, it is. Does that mean that you sit on your ass? No. You got to push because it's our game to lose. There's only very few moves on the board. And it's your game to lose. The more passive you are, the more they take. And they are spending our money like nobody's business. Like nobody's business. Now, tomorrow is August 4th. August 4th, I have proclaimed years ago, is National P P Trump Day. And, you know, that's more to, hey, Obama, it may be your birthday. And by the way, it's my late father's birthday too. But I'd like to call it Trump Day. That way that soon to be impeached and shamed stain on our history that sealed it all as a nation as we knew it gets upset. So make sure you have American flags everywhere tomorrow. And on that note, let's just play that new Tom McDonald song, American flag.
make sure for those of you that can't afford it, download it, you bring them to the charts because this song should be our anthem. And you know what? Do you know where I heard this song being pumped yesterday? And I didn't even make a mention of it, mental note, and it came to me this morning. I was in the super ghetto of Cleveland trying to charge my car. <laughs> and I went to something called, what is it called? Um, so you know how there's Dollar Trees, Dollar Stores. I went to the Dollar Mart, owned by Chinese, of course. And they had a bunch of things that fell off a truck. right? And they had a ton of stuff like it was, you know, you, when you go to Dollar Mart, you think you're getting, uh, what is it? Um, you know, knickknacks like baskets and ashtrays and you know stupid shit but um that one had like weaves everywhere right owned by chinese anyway and uh, outside there were people and they were in that ghetto area and guess what was playing that's right adam calhoun and Tom Someone tell me how this is not one of the dopest videos, the dopest rhythms, the dopest lyrics. You know, BLM. Huh? Guess who's listening to this song? That's what's up. What we need to start is pushing the narrative that the COVID vaccines that have all these things have been targeting minority populations. I've asked all of you to file a FOIA. I did it for myself to find out in detail something they've got to give me something they don't give me something they don't give you something guess what class action suits are extremely effective we all need to get our responses where they tell us oh uh -huh, we can't give you this we're not giving that that's when the people hit down and that's when we say well we believe that your cohorts are giving more poisoning you know medicines and vaccines to those of color and then when the people see that the very people that were kneeling and saying that they need to be sorry for slavery are the ones killing them, it's game over, right? We should have started this a long time ago. I was hoping someone would have brought it out into the ether because, uh, you know, just understand that the devil and those that want to infiltrate you, and, and I know this from experience because I lied for a living they will come to you with everything you want to hear. They will say things like, how dare you say that I was awarded this? The fuck out of here. You get a paycheck from Les Wexner. Fuck you, Vivek. I don't listen to any of that ever because that's just talk. Talk. 
talk, talk. What we need is action. You know, um, last weekend I was traveling and I was somewhere uh, called M Mommy, M Mommy. I like to call it Moana. It's Mommy, uh, Ohio. And I ran into this gentleman, um, older guy. I think he said he was like 80 veteran. His son just retired from the military. And he's like, we need young people with young blood in this office. Da, da, da. He didn't take the vax either. He was like, there was no way they were pushing it hard. Right. And, you know, the discussion was, you know, he saw the Tesla. He's like, oh, I love my Volt. Da, 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 da. And we got talking. And the guy, though, listens to the news. He was already exercising his own discernment. Right. Own discernment. And so it was interesting to see. And when I said, well, how are we going to get people in that aren't part of the establishment if the establishment doesn't even allow them to get on the ballot? He's like, you're right. Well, now we have a vote coming up where they're going to make it even more difficult for people to do anything with a ballot in Ohio. And everyone is just pushing and pushing and pushing. See, and that's the problem. People are not paying attention. They like to go with groupthink because they have been created. <laughs> Creationism. And that's why I thought as a hiatus, you know, after we just kind of touch base on what the news are telling us about President Trump and what the news are telling us about Niger and how we see that the Nigerian princes that have been spamming our Gmail have now turned on their own brothers as traitors as they did centuries ago without joining forces. Remember, so, 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 so now, you know, we got Guinean. There's going to be more that are going to be coming into this fight. Africans need to be able to liberate themselves. I'd like to know where BLM stands on that, where these people don't want the UN placing their own leaders. Remember, kind of like Libya, right? Where Tripoli, the leader there, is sanctioned by the UN, and he's the only leader, but everybody acknowledges that General Haftar is actually in charge because he's of the people his own people. Oh, we don't need military coup. The military sometimes is the only way because usually, and this is key, usually people that join the military join because they love the shit out of their country. The shit out of their country. That's the way it is. The shit out of their country. And in the end, yes, 10 people that are at top leadership in the military you've got 10, four of them will be pussies. They're all politicians. And just so you know, when you start getting your stars, you become a politician in the military. Don't ever think that just because they came from the trenches that they remember that. They just think that if they think like that, they're going to go back to that. So they don't want that. They want to be the cream of the crop. You know, I saw some stuff from like, huh, as I was digging up on stuff, how Stanley McChrystal was involved in a lot of this shit in Florida. Uh, back in 2016 and 2017. And I was like, damn, and people didn't see it. Why? Because it's a game of not understanding who's on your side. And that's because they tell you, listen to me. I'm important. I'm smart. Uh, look at me. I work there. And therefore, it's kind of like that um, Tanya Chuktan, right? Everyone's like, holy crap, you know, the district judge overseeing, yeah, she recused herself when the fusion GPS shit was happening. And she was the one that gave the hardest sentences. And she was appointed by Obama. But nobody looks to see, you know,
where she went to school, how she started her schooling, how she came out of Illinois, the law firm she worked for. She was a public defender in D.C. You know, she worked uh, for Boy Schiller, right? She was in white collar defense, right? She's black, Asian. I mean, she ticked all the boxes. And then you have to ask yourself, what kind of black American woman that was afforded so much would be okay with her own government targeting her own diminished line of succession? You know, because when she came here, she was, um, you know, her parents were both migrants, right? Unless you're an American Indian, you're a migrant period. And that's it. You know, people don't get to see that. They don't understand that. They don't. They don't see the disparities here and how they're the ones. I mean, she's, she reminds me of Nigeria. All about money for them. And that's something that the Ghanese had told me a long, long time ago. You can't trust a Nigerian when money's involved. And Niger has a shit ton of gold. So Let's um let's see that. But before we do that, oh, you know, I'm gonna hold that off for tomorrow. Um, but I want you to know that uh already the French are being evacuated from Niger or Niger, right? That's what we call it. Niger. It's pretty interesting if you see it. Now, the leader of Burkina Faso. You remember Burkina Faso, the nation that was created from Upper Volta after they tore it down, right? You remember who did? Barack Obama's mom. Barack Obama's mom and Peter Strzok's dad, right? Destroyed Upper Volta and created it. Well, here he is talking to Putin, which, by the way, I wanted to say, so I'm on YouTube, right? Um, yesterday, and I'm just trolling through a bunch of um, uh, shorts, and a lot of them are pro-Putin, like super pro-Putin. I'm like, what's going on, YouTube? Which, by the way, today they gave me a strike on my channel because of a show that I did a couple years ago, and you know that's why I private most of my stuff. Um, it's extremely disheartening to see that, but pro-Putin, of course, because that's the plan, to make it look like everyone's pro-Putin and they're all Russian assets now. But here we go. Africa. Camarade euh, président Vladimir Poutine, camarade président chef d'État. Your Excellency, Mr. President, comrade Vladimir Putin. Bonjour. Your Excellency, Chairman of the African Union, heads of the delegation. Thank you. Hello. It gives me great honor to address you here this morning and to convey to you the fraternal greeting 
Mais nous n'avons pas de réponse. C'est de ne pas comprendre comment l'Afrique, avec tant de richesses, avec une nature généreuse, de l'eau, du soleil, en abondance, l'Afrique est aujourd'hui le continent africain. Et comment se fait-il que le chef d'État traverse dans le monde à with the Voici highest levels of famine. How come that we have to ask for help? We ask ourselves, but we don't get any answers. We have a chance to build new relationship. Hopefully, this relationship will be for the better to us in order to build a better future for our country. On behalf of my generation, I would like to say that due to poverty, Many had to cross oceans in quest for a better life. At times, they die. Pour ce qui concerne le Burkina Faso, times they starve. Aujourd'hui, nous sommes it's hard for them to survive. As for Burkina Faso, it's been eight years since we have been facing the most barbaric and violent form of uh, colonialism, barbarism, we are imposed this modern form of slavery. We were taught one thing. A slave that cannot rebel does not deserve pity. And we decided to fight, to fight against terrorists that impede our development and our struggle. Our people decided to take up arms in order to fight terrorism. We are surprised that imperialists, because in Europe, 
Nos grands-pères ont été déportés pour sauver l'Europe. The problem is that the heads of African states do not give anything to these people who fight against imperialism. They are calling us armed units, bandits. We do not agree with such an approach. Leaders of African states should not be puppets when imperialists Mais aussi c'est un message passé à nos chefs d'État africains. Parce qu'au prochain forum, nous ne devrons pas venir ici sans avoir assuré pour ceux qui ne connaissent pas la guerre l'autosuffisance alimentaire de nos peuples. Nous devons prendre l'expérience de ceux qui ont pu déjà atteindre cela en Afrique, tisser de bonnes relations ici, tisser de meilleures relations avec la Fédération de Russie pour pouvoir assouvir les besoins de nos populations. Je ne serai pas peut-être long de temps Nous sommes obligés de nous arrêter à un moment Mais je voudrais terminer en disant que nous devons donc rendre hommage à nos peuples, à nos peuples qui se battent. Gloire à nos peuples, dignité à nos peuples, victoire à nos peuples. La patrie ou la mort, nous vaincrons. Merci, camarades. Thank you, comrades. Спасибо, уважаемый господин Трауре. На что хотел бы обратить внимание? Вот, вот только что выступивший коллега сказал о роли России в борьбе с нацизмом. Она кем-то пытается быть затушевана, забывается. Но эта борьба велась Советским Союзом, России в интересах всего человечества. Для освобождения человечества внутри for the interest and for the benefit of the Africa per se, but also for the benefit of the humankind, because it leads to such results that improve the quality of relations in the world. Hence, it improves the situation in the world at large. And in this sense, I agree with Mr. Traoré. It resembles pretty much what was happening with the Soviet Union, what has been happening with Russia in its struggle, and what is happening happening with Africa in their quest yeah, for genuine independence. So when I saw this last month, I was actually listening to it on the elevator going down in my apartment building and I sat back and, and watched it. And I sat on the couch just for a moment in the lobby of my building and I was overwhelmed with one statement he said a slave and it was misinterpreted just so you know i may speak french 
I will never, <laughs> but a slave that doesn't rebel deserves no pity. That was so perfectly stated. If you do not realize the slavery that has taken hold of your mind to make you follow the masses and the general narratives, then you're already on the losing side and deserve no pity because you do not give enough love to your own values, your own opinions. This man gets it. His generation, as he said, is asking questions. How is it that a continent with all the resources that power the imperialist nations, the West and the East, is starving? How is it that that continent is being used as an, a global experiment on medications and vaccines seeking to quell their population? How is it that it's the dark continent for a reason? How is it that they don't have power, that they don't have food, yet they have the most oil, gold, and rare earth, and other minerals we need to power? I'll tell you how. Their own people came in there alleging to help. How many times did Oprah Winfrey and her NGOs come in and create? What about the Clinton Foundation? While many people in 2016 thought it was just about the American people. Now, you understand that it was our nation that was causing so much pain to others. And that is because we were so self-centered, focusing only on us. And that's the key. And so while many are striking down, all these are militants. Listen to the words. He apologized to Putin saying, I'm really sorry if I've ever offended you. I don't like how they're treating us as, you know, we're bad people. No, we're not. We're asking questions and we're not allowed to ask questions. That means we're slaves. And if we do not rebel, we deserve no pity. And here is us rebelling and asking the questions. What is the key here in the United States, in our own country? Are we allowed to ask questions? No. Is our justice system answering those questions? No. Is you, are the people that you fucking follow answering those questions? No. They are just reacting. Questions need to be answered. And that's what's important. And I guess this is why I always say, hate me now, love me later. Sometimes provoking thought is enough. And one thing I want to say before I put on, um, you know, our intermission, before we get to see a documentary where, get this, was created while the media was still demi-free, meaning that they were not replaced by AI avatars. There's a, there's a damn, there's a, <laughs> There's a patent for that shit. There's a lot of patents that would freak you out. But that's what's key here. We need to see where the truth is. And the only way you do that is through yourself. You know, all scriptures from the Old Testament, the Torah, to new versions of testaments, right? They're all new every year. Yeah, they find something new. The deleted books, the Quran, huh. the Mahta, as I like to call it for short, on the Indian philosophies, the Buddhism, the, 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 the. They say one thing. Actions are one type of sin. 
the biggest sin is the thoughts because thoughts become reality. And when we focus on fear, fear seems to manifest. When we focus on joy, joy manifests. I struggle with this all the time, even though that's how you pierce and, 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 and create and become an architect. I fail in that a lot, a lot. But what we need to focus on is solutions, not complaining, not bitching, not taking other people's shit and regurgitating it, not reacting to what the media is saying, not, 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 but taking control and being laser focused on what can actually create change. And the thing is, everyone's got their shtick, right? I talk about trafficking. So let's all focus there then, right? Because, oh, let's, 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 let's talk about these traffickers. Ooh, let's round up 10 of them. <laughs> but you still have elected officials, elected, selected officials that allow it to happen. So the 10 you took out, another 10 will be replaced almost instantly. For every one you take out, 100 come out. Oh, uh, let's focus on the fraud of them giving our tax dollars or the IRS is a fraud. It totally is. All of these things are correct. All of them are correct. How the fuck are you going to fix it? Oh, so you perp walk one, two. You have to be laser focused. What President Trump did and what he is doing is sacrificing his own being to show you, not just tell you. So while he's showing you, why are we, the people of the United States, not doing what we need to do to make sure that after it's shown, we already have the tools? to fix. Americans have forgotten what it means to be an American. Americans have forgotten that they govern, not others. You should not be meek. This is one life you have to live. You know, a lot of people tell me, oh, you should quit smoking. I should because it makes my hair smell, you know, um, my fingers smell, you know, I have to wash it all the time, but it's like, fuck it. My clock is ticking from the minute I took my first breath. I'll try to do it in moderation if I can. And I will succumb to that addiction for now. It might be temporary. I might quit at some point. I probably won't, but I'm just saying. This is it. We need to elevate ourselves from the garbage. We need to elevate ourselves from battles that are simply that, battles. We need to be focusing on the damn war. And the war is to get the right people into office. To do that, we need to fix our elections. To do that, we need to be applying for jobs, which all of Americans will probably be <laughs> blacklisted now, but not later. I've already shared to you. We need chefs, we need teachers, we need admins, we need investigators. We need people like that Jose guy on TikTok that can use open source data and triangulate your location from really shitty videos. We need to have compassion and we should have no pity for the slaves that don't rebel. For the granola munchers that you see that are, <laughs> and it's like, I hate this. I don't have money. I'm paying a lot of taxes. Well, then why are you obeying? Why don't you resist and rebel? I can't do anything. It's came over. I'm just going to do my job. Well, then don't fucking complain. I have no pity for you.
I was told that I have to get it or else I lose my job. Well, I guess your job was more important than your health. I'm sorry you felt that way, but I have no pity for that. You made that decision. I feel for you in retrospect how bad you feel, but that's it. Defiance. Defiance was actually what got mankind into the predicament, the sticky predicament they are. So let's go back to the prodigal sin and think, hey, prodigal sin was defiance. So why aren't we not defiant anymore? That was the beauty of it. The beginning of the torment begins with defiance, but the end must end with defiance. You see, it's almost like you start something, there's a start and an end. The way something starts, huh? the irony of things is, that's how you end it. And so if we began our prodigal sin with defiance, isn't the answer of ceasing the suffering with defiance? See, defiance. See, I, I, I cry a lot more than people think. Um, when people that are close to me realize just how compassionate I am and, and, and things that I do that people don't see. And, and, and damn, I could be a bitch. Oh, it's like a lion with a thorn in their paw. If I have that, if I have a thorn in my foot, I'm not going to be nice. I have the biggest thorn in my heart and I'm bitter. You know, when I hear people saying, I don't know what to do, you know, big names too. Well, maybe you shouldn't be using the same fucking stupid games with Infowars and using government assets. Why are you joining forces? Oh, we need a PSYOP for a PSYOP. Oh, kind of like how we need to, you know, what is it called? Canvas and how we need to, what is it called? Ballot harvest because the other side's doing it. So you're going to use the tools that the bad guys are doing and you expect to win. No, all you need to do is be defiant. It all started with defiance and it should end with defiance. That's the key. So let's see what the original Hebrew text reveals about Genesis 1. This will be our coffee break. This is, I don't agree with everything because as me, me, myself, I've done a lot of work in this domain and I have studied this like no other. And defiance is the exercise of free will. You have the right to defy. And maybe in this poetic sense is, well, we let them loose with defiance. Now let them come back home with defiance. That's the story of the prodigal son. Defiance was key. So let's see what they have to say of the first chapters of Genesis. <laughs> There are a lot of people who look at those early uh, chapters in Genesis, and one of the accusations is that the Bible's not a science textbook, so therefore we can't really refer to that when we then look at the universe around us. What's your perspective well, as a scientist in the Hebrew? I would say, well, it is. Uh, it's clearly it's it's clearly historical again, a historical narrative. It's a magisterial literary liter presentation, and and it's a, the a foundational theological treatise. It also has an interesting perspective. It's it's um, what we call a phenomenological perspective. It's what it's what do you see? Uh, mm -hmm. It's what do you experience with your five senses? Uh, and so that's that's the that's the perspective yeah. of, of the text. Well, could you take me through it and show me what, you, what you're talking a about? Absolutely. I uh, we'll, we'll we'll work here with the uh, Leningrad Codex because it is the com uh, it is complete. And it's easiest to read. I'm, I'm most familiar with this. 
And um, it's easiest to read for you. That's why. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but it 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 begins with um, uh, Genesis one one two three is a preface uh, to the to Genesis and um, uh, the rest of the book, and then we have uh, Genesis uh, two four is the is the beginning of the Toledot sections. And I mentioned the Toledot has to do with uh, genealogy uh, and giving birth and all mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And so Genesis 1, 2, 2 3, uh, that is the, that's the creation uh, account. And it actually starts, I think, very interesting uh, that what I, what I call an introductory encapsulation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then the details are, are given in the subsequent verses. Mm -hmm. It starts with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's, there's no word in Hebrew for universe. That means he created everything. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the, the next thing we find in Genesis 1-2, we find a water ball. And uh, it's empty and unfilled. And God, is in, in the subsequent days, is going to fill that universe. Before that, his first act of creation, because it's the mind of God bringing from nothing uh, mm -hmm, everything, mm -hmm. everything, so that the that the the physical uh, the physical law, so that the light can work, uh, so that life processes can develop, uh, all those things, God puts those into place, and then He creates light uh, and so forth. Then He creates and spreads out the heaven. The, it's very purposeful uh, the way in which creation is presented. Uh, for instance, in Genesis one nine, uh, the best way to translate it is that is um, is that in order that the dry land would appear. We don't have, in the Hebrew, it's not two parallel things, uh, that the gathering, let the, let, the, let the waters gather together into one place in order that the dry land might appear. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the dry land is where man will live. Mm -hmm. It's purposeful. It's all moving towards the creation of yeah. man and mm -hmm. creating a world where man will live. Uh, and so it's very purposeful. God's creation is that yeah. way. Very organized. Yeah as you would expect. And so his word is the same way. Uh, has, and that's why it has all these characteristics, why it's so creative, why it's beautiful li literature, ma magnificent theology, all building from real historical events. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the, the fifth day of creation and he creates, he creates life. First with the fish and the birds and then the sixth day animals and then man. And man is created in his image. And uh, we go then, we go then, as we go through Genesis 1, 1 through uh, 2, 3, but that preface, we also find in there a little section of poetry. And so it goes from poetry, it goes from narrative to poetry to narrative, what I call a uh, narrative poetry switch. Uh, and uh, because that little section of poetry is used to punctuate that prose at the point of the creation of man in God's hmm. image. Hmm. Now, there's, there's a lot of ideas about the image of God. What does that mean? I think that the image of God is found in the verbs itself. It's in the text itself. Because what we find is, what, is, what does God do? And we, we do the same thing, but at a, but at a lower level. Uh, we, we can communicate. Of course, he speaks things into existence. We can't do that. But he communicates. Mm -hmm. We can create. Uh, we can create a place like this with lights and so forth and so on. Of course, he, he creates out of nothing. Uh, he pronounces things good. We evaluate and, and do things like that. We label. Science is all about labeling. Uh, we name things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. We bless mm -hmm. as he blessed. Yeah. I think the image of God is right in the text. It's, it's not some metaphysical thing like, like Augustine said of, you know, mind, will, and emotions. No, it's right in the verbs in the text. Mm -hmm. And uh, we move from, uh, from the, 
uh, from Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, into then into the, the details of the creation of man uh, and how the name of God changes. It changes from Elohim, which means the, uh, the, the premier one, the preeminent one, Elohim. Uh, and uh, we move from there to, the, to Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh, which is the, the covenant name. It's then about the creation of man. And the way the creation of man is described is that God created man artistically. The verb is yatsar. A yatsar is a potter. Uh, and so it's, he's created artistically. And then we have the intimate uh, action of God breathing into him the breath of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, he creates man. He puts him in the garden, beautiful garden that he made for him. Uh, we have, we have he has the prohibition not to eat of a certain fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and then, of course, uh, woman is created, marriage. And, of course, we have another wonderful poetic s- section in which Adam waxes poetic uh, when uh, Eve is brought to him, uh, just like every man does when he finds his wife. He starts, sure. All of a sudden, he can start to recite poetry mm-hmm. out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, so we, it, and then we have, we have the fall. Uh, there are those who want to den- who deny the mm-hmm. fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll say, well, this is just an account of... Um, why man's afraid of snakes. That's all they say it is. Uh, it's obviously much more than that. Apostle Paul says in Romans 16, 20, he talks about may, you know, may the Lord uh, crush, uh, may the Lord Jesus crush Satan under your feet. Uh, this is obviously a reference back to, uh, to Genesis. With the fall, we have uh, the uh, man is actually not cursed. The ground is cursed and the serpent is cursed, but man is judged. Adam is judged and Eve is judged. We have the expulsion from the garden, and death comes, but death becomes the means of life. Mm-hmm. Because man can die, Adam can die, then Christ one day can die yeah. and die for our sins. Yeah. Uh, and so um, God uh, turns, always, always t- turns things around like what, that way. Yeah. Uh, and then we have uh, in um, chapter 4, we have just the opposite of what, uh, of, of what uh, evolutionary biologists and anthropologists are saying, the ascent of man, we have the descent of man. Mm-hmm. The first man who was cursed uh, is Cain for murdering his brother. In his, in his line, we come upon one of his descendants by the name of Lamech. And Lamech, uh, what he does, again, one of those uh, NPN switches, uh, he boasts uh, to his wives in poetry that he murdered a man. Hmm. Taking the wonderful idiom of poetry, which is to be used to express the most sublime things, to use it to boast of murder. Hmm. Showing, it just shows how, how man has descended. Yeah. And uh, then we come uh, to chapter five of Genesis, uh, which begins a series of 10 uh, genealogies that go from 5.1 through 9.29. Here we have a, a, the, Toledot, the, the book of the Toledot of Adam. And what we find here uh, is the record of the death of Adam. God said, when you eat, you're going to die. And here we have the death mm-hmm. of Adam. And we have that like a hammer blow over and over again. And he died. Mm-hmm. And he died, except Enoch. So we have in these 10 genealogies, there's four that are different. Uh, Enoch's is different. Adam's is different because it talks about that he had a son in his image. Uh, Lamech's is different, the good Lamech, uh, because he prays that his son Noah uh, will uh, deliver mankind from the, from the results of the curse. And uh, that's in Genesis 5.28. And then, uh, then in Noah's genealogy, we have the entire flood account. And the flood is a 
uncreation. It's an uncreation mm. of the world until it gets to the point that the ark is traveling no longer above the earth, but upon the water. You can see that it's returned to a complete water ball, going back to what it mm-hmm. started at in Genesis 1-2. When the waters are receding, the same wording, wording is used when the mountaintops appears, is used the same wording that is used in the Hebrew, that is used in Genesis 1-9, that the dry, let the dry land, nor that the dry land might appear. So we find uh, these deliberate allusions uh, to, uh, to creation that the Lord is remaking the earth. And the flood, is it a global flood? Well, I mean, I don't know how many times, I think 35 times or so, the word coal, which is all, occurs in the flood narrative. Uh, if this is a judgment on mankind, uh, then it has to be global uh, for, for the, uh, the sin of mankind. The way it's described, the, the mountains uh, being submerged, uh, the, high, the high, highest mountains being submerged on the water, this is a global flood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, why would you need the animals? Uh, this, 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 uh, save the mm-hmm. animals. Uh, after the flood, they come out of the ark, uh, and then we have the, uh, they come out of the ark, and we have the first words of Noah in which he, he actually curses uh, his, uh, his, his son Ham. Uh, so they're the first words of Noah. Noah says nothing uh, during the flood narrative. He just obeys God, whatever God tells him to mm-hmm. do. You know, make this boat 450 feet long and, uh, you know, 75 feet wide um, and 45 feet high. Make that boat, make that boat. It says Noah did whatever God told him to do. And as we, can, as we continue through these first 11 chapters of Genesis, we come to chapter 10, which is called, which is called the Table of the Nations, uh, which are the sons of Noah. Uh, it mentions in that chapter uh, that the people are in their, uh, their different nations and their languages. So we now go back, Moses goes back in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, and explains how the languages developed. This is one of the, again, one of the issues uh, that uh, evolutionists have a hard time. Mm-hmm. Where does language come from? They can't explain, they can't explain human consciousness, they can't explain language. Uh, and so we understand that all the languages come from a judgment of God against a rebellious uh, people mm-hmm. uh, who are trying to make a name for themselves. Now the word in Hebrew for name is Shem. God, only God can make a Shem, you see. Yeah. Uh, and they're trying to make a name for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's a, it, it's, it's a text uh, which has certain sounds in it. And as you read through the text in Hebrew, you keep on hearing these certain sounds. And when you, put, when you string them together, it spells the word Nevelah, which is the word folly. And so this is not a tower which is going to establish them as these great people, but it's a tower of folly. This is a, a, a task of folly to try to, uh, to reach heaven, to be yeah. as great as, um, as God. It, it, then it continues, uh, the narrative continues in chapter uh, 11, the genealogy continues with the genealogy of Shem. The difference between chapter 5 genealogy, however, uh, 5, you know, 5, 1 through 9, 29, is that in each, gene- in each genealogical generation, there's no mention of death. Of course, people died, but it's no longer mentioned. So mm. it's, it's like a, a new beginning again, uh, and the age starts to shrink of the patriarchs. Mm. Uh, mm. We don't know exactly why, um, and that's something that the biologists and so forth are going to have to deal with, um, what, you know, why yeah. that happened. Mm. And then as we move to ch- chapter, uh, chapter 11, we come to the Toledot of Terah. And the Toledot of Terah is not going to be about Terah. It's going to be about his famous son, Abraham. Mm-hmm. And then from then on in Genesis, Moses always will, first of all, give a, a brief genealogy of the rejected line. 
So after Abraham, we don't go to Isaac, we go to Ishmael for a brief section, mm -hmm. then we go to Isaac. Uh, and then uh, with Isaac, we don't go direct directly to uh, Jacob, we go to Esau and then to Jacob. Mm -hmm. And then Genesis ends, actually ends with Joseph, a descendant of Jacob, and he is, he is uh, he's buried in, in mm -hmm. Egypt. Mm -hmm. And you know, all of God's promises are for the land of Canaan. So it sets us up perfectly, the perfect yeah. cliffhanger mm -hmm. for the book of Exodus. Yeah. So, Steve, when you just walked through that yeah. with me, mm -hmm. it, it just seems so apparent that um, the, the latter parts of Genesis and, and all of the, the genealogy and, and the story of Terah leading up even to Abraham, that there is, there is no disconnect between all of that and everything that we see in the beginning. It's, it's just one long historical narrative, is it not? It is. As a matter of fact, the genealogies form the structure, uh, not just for Genesis, but the, the narratives are embedded in the genealogies. The genealogies are picked up, that's actually called the Toledot, in the book of Ruth to establish mm -hmm. that David is a descendant of Judah, which is required by Jacob's prophecy uh, that the, um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh comes, that's Messiah comes. So this is a, a prophecy having to do with a monarchy that must be in Judah. So it's established in the book of Ruth and it uses the Toledot formula. And then we move into the New Testament. How is the pedigree of Jesus established with two genealogy, one going back through Mary's line, all the way back to Adam, showing that he is a descendant of Adam. And then we have in the book of Matthew, the genealogy goes back to David. Uh, and uh, the, the important thing is that it goes back to David through Solomon. That's the, kind of the royal line. But Jesus' actual physical descent is not through Solomon. It's through another son of, mm. of David, yeah. Nathan. But we have these genealogies, two genealogies establishing Jesus uh, as Messiah, he has, as, as both the son of David yeah. uh, and also the son yeah. of Adam. We just step back for a second. How important is the historical narrative that we find throughout Genesis, including all of the, uh, the generations that are laid out there? How important is that to Christianity? It shows that Christianity has a historical basis. The way the gospel is presented in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus died according to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. It's what the scriptures say, and the scriptures represent actual historical uh, data, historical events, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. So Christianity is, it's not a leap in the dark. It is understanding that it has a very strong historical basis uh, and that our, our savior is also our creator. Also our creator. So, if our Savior is also our Creator, then what does that tell you? That if our Creator allowed us to have free will and we defied Him, then defiance is how we liberate ourselves once again. I mean, you know, when you look at things and you study them, you're just like, you know, you know what the Temple of Babel was? Confusion. I like that's literally for someone that actually can speak Aramaic. It is literally what it translates into. So they have taken it to be tongues or language that is the confusion. It's about what you say, not the language. It is what you say, say. And as I've said, 
the best language, the universal language is mathematics, but yeah, that's another thing. Now, I really wanted to get into, uh, you know, everything that the media is telling you about President Trump, but I really want to show you this documentary. And so I'm going to put a disclaimer first. So let's do that. All right. So now I've put that short disclosure on there. Rachel Maddow over a decade ago had requested that all her listeners at the time share her documentary. And anyway, right? Iraq. Yes, she had a documentary. Yes, she verbally spoke that permission. So please grab yourself a cup of coffee and enjoy the show of what journalism used to look like. Good evening. Thanks for being with us tonight. This is a joint resolution of Congress. It was passed in 1964. Uh, the signatures here, there's the Speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, the President of the Senate, and down here, the big one, that is the signature of the President of the United States. This resolution passed on a Friday. The Tuesday before, the President had gone on TV in a live, late-night, urgent broadcast. My fellow Americans. And in that broadcast, he said the United States Navy had come under attack. He said there had been open aggression on the high seas against the United States of America. The result was the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. It passed in the House unanimously. It passed in the Senate, 88 to 2. Turns out we got snookered. It did not happen the way they said it happened, the way they so urgently and sternly informed us that it happened. But it would be seven years before this was repealed. And by then, the escalation that this levered us into had already become the longest yet war in U.S. history. A war that defined an era that indelibly tattooed the generation of political leaders who made it happen or who did not stop it from happening. We say that Vietnam changed our politics forever, but less than 40 years after this, again, a campaign directed at the highest levels of government to get us to agree to a war based on something that did not happen the way they said it happened. It was a months-long campaign in 2002 and 2003, and it worked. It's a decade now since it worked, since they got that war. How did it work? Why did it work? And could it work again? NBC News investigative correspondent Michael Isakoff and Mother Jones's David Korn, an MSNBC contributor, they co-authored a book called Hubris that detailed exactly how that war was sold to the American people. What you are about to see tonight is based on their reporting. We are still too close to all of this in time to know if what some say was the biggest foreign policy deception and disaster in modern U.S. history will define its generation of leaders, too. Whether this is going to be the first line in the obituaries of the men and women who caused that war. But if what we went through 10 years ago did not change us, change us as a country, if we do not understand what happened and adapt as a country to resist it, then history says we are doomed to repeat it again. Here's what happened. I'm pausing this just to make um, the statement that was cut. Rachel Maddow had requested on her show that people share this documentary and upload and reshare and reshare. This is when Rachel Maddow was Rachel Maddow. This is what she had to say. For those of you that are joining on Twitter now, pushing the boundaries here, please grab yourself a seat, grab a coffee, cigarette, whatever, pick your poison and watch this. Because what we're seeing unfold in the Sahel region and the things that are happening right now with the 
begging Iran to get on the deal while Iran is getting onto BRICS, begging for something. You're going to see where the source of it all was and how it started and then who armed the Sahara region. Ready? Remember, this was already explicitly stated over 10 years ago that we have full authority to share this. Enjoy the show. The people of the United States and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. My belief is we will in fact be greeted as liberators. There's a lot of money to pay for this that doesn't have to be U.S. taxpayer money, and it starts with the assets of the Iraqi people. You go to war with the army you have, not the army you might want or wish to have. Search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. What weighed on many of us is the 9-11 attack revealed major vulnerabilities. Iraq had been a big problem even before 9-11 and became even bigger and more urgent in light of 9-11. America's greatest national security failure since Pearl Harbor hurls its leaders into a massive national security response. And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Osama bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda terrorist network are the immediate target. But the day after the attacks, President George W. Bush comes to the White House Situation Room and orders counterterrorism director Richard Clark to look into an Iraq connection. When I said, Mr. President, we will do that, of course, but we've done it before and rather recently, and the answer has always been no, and it's likely to be no this time, he didn't like that answer, and he got mad. I was in, in the room during that time, and he was very adamant about uh, perhaps seeing whether or not Iraq could conduct such an operation against the United States. I was surprised um, when the president left the room. I said, I believe Secretary Wolfowitz got to him. Paul Wolfowitz, Bush's Deputy Secretary of Defense, has had Saddam on his personal enemies list for two decades. Every time he survives something, he sends the message to his enemies, I outlast my enemies, and if you are on the wrong list when I'm still around, you'll be in trouble. Paul Wolfowitz had become convinced that if we looked strongly enough, if we look closely enough, 
we'd find the hand of Saddam Hussein behind virtually every terrorist attack on the United States. Even before 9-11, Wolfowitz and Undersecretary of Defense Douglas Fife had been driving administration policy on Iraq. Some of us believed that you will have a Saddam Hussein problem forever unless you get rid of him. Meeting notes from the afternoon of 9-11 show Donald Rumsfeld tasking a top aide to find the best info fast, good enough to hit Saddam Hussein. He asks the aide to get evidence from Wolfowitz of a Saddam connection with UBL, Osama bin Laden. We all looked at each other like, what are they talking about? Who the hell, Saddam Hussein, bin Laden hates him, thinks he's a heretic. There's no connection between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. The word goes out to the CIA, FBI, and all the intelligence services. Find the connection. First, though, the war on terror goes to Afghanistan to capture or kill Osama bin Laden and destroy the Taliban regime that supports al-Qaeda. By November, the enemy is on the run, forced to flee into the mountains and across the border to Pakistan. But while bin Laden remains at large, Washington's attention turns to Iraq, to Saddam. I think the United States, since Desert Storm, has always had a... a, a, a various planning with respect to Iraq. Operation Desert Storm, also known as the First Gulf War. In 1991, following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, a U.S.-led coalition of 34 countries drives Saddam's forces out of Kuwait and decimates the Iraqi army in six weeks. But despite that overwhelming victory, President George H.W. Bush faces criticism at home for not going all the way to Baghdad to rid the world of Saddam Hussein. I made very, very clear from day one that it was not an objective of the coalition to get Saddam Hussein out of there by force. Dick Cheney, his defense secretary at the time, supports the first President Bush's restraint. I think we got it right. The conversations I had with leaders in the region afterwards, they were concerned that we not get into a position where we were an imperialist power willy-nilly moving into uh, capitals in that part of the world taking down governments. After the Gulf War, Bush and his successor Bill Clinton send U.S. planes to provide air cover for vulnerable populations in northern and southern Iraq. The UN Security Council imposes harsh sanctions and sends in weapons inspectors to dig deeply for Iraqi WMD capabilities, weapons of mass destruction. This went on for years. At a certain point, unbeknownst to the weapons inspectors or anyone else other than Iraq, it turns out that we had pretty much accounted for the full system, but we didn't know that. In 1998, Saddam refuses to cooperate further, and the United Nations pulls out the weapons inspectors. Saddam virtually seals Iraq off from the West. In a 1998 letter to President Clinton, Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, and other leading neoconservatives urge the president to take action to remove Saddam's regime from power. 
The neocons align with an urbane Iraqi expatriate named Ahmed Chalabi. Chalabi heads the Iraqi National Congress, a group of Iraqi emigres and defectors lobbying to get rid of Saddam. I say to you now that the opposition is united in its aim of getting rid of Saddam and establishing democracy in Iraq. He was a very impressive and effective spokesman for the Iraqi opposition to Saddam. A very slick operator who uh, was skillful enough to convey the idea that he could step in as a new leader of Iraq. But that was totally divorced from realities on the ground. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will... When George W. Bush is sworn in in January 2001, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, and Fife take the reins of Defense Department policy. Vice President Cheney has reversed course and now supports regime change in Iraq. Motive awaits opportunity. And for the Bush administration, 9-11 provides it. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. When I heard the axis of evil speech, weapons of mass destruction, I thought, well, something's going to happen. The idea was take actions after 9-11 that would so shock state supporters of terrorism around the world that we might be able to get them to change their policies regarding support for terrorism and pursuit of weapons of mass destruction. General Franks is both a warrior but also a wise and inspiring commander. A declassified memo from November 2001 reveals that Donald Rumsfeld met as early as then with CENTCOM Commander General Tommy Franks to review plans for the decapitation of the Iraqi government. They discuss ideas of how to start a war. One suggestion is to create a dispute over WMD inspections. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. 9-11 made it politically possible for the first time to persuade the American people to break a tradition of not launching offensive wars. The pressure to find evidence falls heavily on all 15 U.S. intelligence agencies. The extremely strong policy win that was blowing at the time and everyone in government corridors felt made it absolutely clear what was preferred and what was not preferred. Atta, Mohammed Atta, leader of Al-Qaeda's 9-11 hijackings. From Prague comes a Czech intelligence report of a photograph allegedly showing Mohammed Atta meeting with a high-ranking Iraqi intelligence officer. The photograph of the supposed meeting is never made publicly available. Mohammed Atta was a slight guy, barely what, 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, and skinny. The guy in the photograph was muscular and thick and had a neck the size of two of my necks. And I mean, that's not Muhammad Atta in that photograph, but send it to the lab anyway. And, and in my mind, the matter was put to bed. 
in the final analysis. Of but even without definitive evidence, the vice president goes public with it. It's been pretty well confirmed that he did go to Prague and he did meet with um, a senior official of the Iraqi intelligence service in Czechoslovakia last April. Several I was sitting in my den in my home in Washington, D.C. Was, uh, and I remember looking at the TV screen saying, what did I just hear? And I, first time in my life, I actually threw something at the television because I couldn't believe what I just heard. Over and over again, the vice president for years would say, we had a report of this meeting. It's true. There was a report and nobody believed it. That's what they didn't add. We clearly know that there... In a PBS interview on The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, National Security Adviser Condoleezza Rice reveals with certainty more evidence of Saddam's supposed terrorist link. We know, too, that um, several of the detainees, uh, in particular some high-ranking detainees, have said that uh, Iraq provided some training uh, to al-Qaeda in uh, chemical weapons uh, development. The key high-ranking detainee Rice is referring to is an al-Qaeda commander named Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi. He's at first interrogated by the FBI using standard interrogation techniques, but the CIA wants more. They seize control of him, they send him to Egypt where he's rendered and turned over to one of the most brutal intelligence services in the world. This is al-Libi years later, in a Libyan prison being visited by his family. This video was recently located by Michael Isakoff. Within weeks of his interrogation in Egypt, al-Libi coughs up this story that he hadn't told the FBI before, that Saddam was training al-Qaeda in chemical and biological weapons. It's the single most frightening story that could have been told post 9-11. Almost from the outset, the intelligence community has doubts about the claim. A 2002 CIA report states that questions persist about al-Libi's forthrightness and truthfulness, and that in some instances he seems to have fabricated information. After the invasion, al-Libi will recant the story that was extracted by the Egyptians' brutal interrogation. What we said at the time was, look, he said two different things at two different times and we will tell the policy consumers and other analysts in the community both stories you choose to believe what you choose to believe but I don't know which one's accurate the administration chooses to believe the connection we've learned that Iraq has trained al-Qaeda members in bomb making and poisons and deadly gases right up to the war and beyond it remains a key administration argument for war, and the public largely trusts it to be true. If you look at all the key pieces of evidence that they presented publicly at the time, on every single one of them, not only was there doubt, there was debate within the intelligence agencies of the U.S. government. The intelligence community assessed that Saddam Hussein was building a mobile biological weapons capability to avoid detection by the U.S. and its allies. And the assessment was based almost entirely on one source from the German government, a source named Curveball. His real name, as far as they know, is Rafid Ahmed Alwan. 
an Iraqi engineer who makes his way to Germany and tells German intelligence that he worked in Saddam's mobile weapons labs used to develop weapons of mass destruction. In the intelligence community, Curveball was known to be a fabricator. He could not be relied upon. His intelligence was always, had been sort of stamped, you know, <laughs> do, not, do not disseminate, this is, this is useless. Curveball is a lone and seriously suspect source. And U.S. intelligence agencies rely solely on German reports. They never actually question him themselves. In this 2011 interview with Britain's newspaper The Guardian, the man called Curveball confirms the lies of his pre-war claims. This particular issue about the supposed mobile labs uh, was mishandled all the way around, certainly by the intelligence community in terms of how it was assessed, and then became the very heart of the whole case about unconventional weapons. With dubious evidence like that, the White House will present its case for war. The case of Saddam Hussein, a sworn enemy of our country, requires a candid appraisal of the facts. Simply stated, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. There is no doubt that he is amassing them to use against our friends, against our allies, and against us. I had a seat at the stage next to the lectern where he was speaking, and I literally bolted at that. With our help, a liberated Iraq can be a great nation once again. Vice President Dick Cheney's speech to the veterans of foreign wars is the opening salvo of the Bush administration's effort to sell to the American people what White House insiders call the product. Thank you very much. It was a shock. It was a total shock. I couldn't believe the vice president was saying this. In doing work with the CIA on Iraq WMD, through all the briefings I heard at Langley, I never saw one piece of credible evidence that there was an ongoing program. And that's when I began to believe they're getting serious about this. They want to go into Iraq. Two weeks after the speech, Cheney again makes his case on national television. What we know is just bits and pieces we gather through the intelligence system, but we do know with absolute certainty that he is using his procurement system to acquire the equipment he needs in order to enrich uranium to build a nuclear weapon. Saddam and nukes. Absolute certainty. A terrifying prospect based on the CIA's discovery that Iraq is attempting to purchase 60,000 aluminum tubes. Some analysts become convinced that the tubes are intended to be used in centrifuges to make uranium for nuclear weapons. Soon after the discovery, the Department of Energy gets hold of the actual tubes and asks engineering professor Houston Wood, an expert on gas centrifuges, to evaluate them. From the Information they gave me, it took me about 15 minutes to come to the conclusion that these tubes could not be used for gas centrifuges. They're too thick. They're too heavy. The Energy Department concludes that the tubes are for conventional rockets, not for nuclear weapons. 
but CIA analysts stick to their position that the tubes are for centrifuges, and the White House embraces that position. Administration sources leak the disputed findings to the New York Times in September 2002. The paper runs its sensational scoop on the front page. Um, this is, uh, I don't, and I want to Within hours, time, Dick Cheney is quoting that scoop as fact source, on Meet the Press. It's now public that, in fact, um, he has been seeking to acquire, and we have been able to intercept and prevent him from acquiring through this particular channel, um, the kinds of tubes that are necessary to build a centrifuge. And I called my friends in Oak Ridge and I said, are these the same tubes that we were talking about last year? And they said, yes. And I said, I thought we put that to rest a year ago. United Nations inspections also... Four days later, commemorating the first anniversary of 9-11, President George W. Bush repeats the claim at the United Nations. Iraq has made several attempts to buy high-strength aluminum tubes used to enrich uranium for a nuclear weapon. I think the Bush administration took a great deal of satisfaction in being able to cite the you know, supposedly liberal New York Times uh, in making their case for it. Absent the aluminum tubes, um, most of the community believes that there is no sufficient evidence to assess that there is a nuclear program. From the African country of Niger comes another nuclear alarm. Italy's military intelligence agency informs the CIA that it has the text of a contract between Iraq and Niger for Saddam to purchase 500 metric tons of yellow cake, a form of uranium suitable for nuclear weapons. Well, there were rather extensive um, written documents about the ways in which Iraq was negotiating to buy very significant amounts of uranium ore. But the State Department expressed how dubious they were about these documents and the likelihood that they were forged. At the time, no one from U.S. intelligence had actually laid eyes on the documents, and they will ultimately turn out to be forgeries. But when a DIA report on the Yellow Cake claim is presented to Dick Cheney, he orders the CIA to dig deeper. The agency sends to Niger a veteran diplomat with extensive experience in Africa, former Ambassador Joseph Wilson. I knew the foreign minister, who was subsequently the prime minister. I knew the minister of mines. It did not happen. It could not have happened just because of the nature of uranium mining operations in Francophone Africa. Uh, the French maintained control. The most important thing to know about the yellow cake story is that the CIA never believed it. But even as speculation, it is enough for administration officials to move ahead with plans to take out Saddam. National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice goes on CNN to alert the nation. The problem here is that there will always be some uncertainty about uh, how quickly he can acquire a nuclear weapon. But we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. What I was hearing and what I knew did not jive. I asked one time at Langley, am I crazy or is there no credible evidence of an ongoing program? And I had a former deputy director of CIA said to me, you're not crazy. But there are administration voices urging caution. Secretary of State Colin Powell and his senior staff, who, unlike their counterparts at defense, are all former military men, they press to give a chance for sanctions to work, for inspections to keep Saddam in check. The concern was we hadn't finished in Afghanistan. 
And if we went to war in Iraq, we would take the emphasis off Afghanistan, which subsequently is exactly what happened. The administration has Saddam squarely in its sights. The time has come to persuade Congress to squeeze the trigger. One of the most serious responsibilities Congress has is to cast a vote to send a young man or woman to war to die. With Congress back from its summer recess, administration leaders prepare to make their case to invade Iraq, to eliminate Saddam. Inside the White House, Paul Wolfowitz's deputy, Under Secretary of Defense Douglas Fife, an Iraq hawk like his boss, presents a slideshow to national security officials that is full of questionable assertions. Of all the places where intelligence was being manipulated in the, in the Bush administration, uh, the Fife shop was the key place. There was a debate about how one characterizes the relationship between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. Nobody made the argument that there was no relationship between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. I want to thank the... Uh, the administration deploys its biggest guns to push congressional leaders for quick passage of a resolution to authorize the president to take military action. It's an important signal for the world to see that this country is united in our resolve to deal with um, threats that we face. The president made the point that there was an urgency to taking action, that it couldn't wait. He got very animated. He used, uh, uncharacteristically, profanity and used the middle finger to demonstrate Saddam Hussein's disdain for the United States and for him personally. A number of members of Congress, mostly Democrats, remain unconvinced. I'm still very skeptical about uh, Saddam Hussein's uh, intent and position. Nothing has changed the basis for that skepticism. The Senate Intelligence Committee requests a national intelligence estimate, a comprehensive summary of the evidence. NIEs are routinely delivered on intelligence issues, yet on this gravest of matters, none yet exists. In three weeks, the CIA pulls together what normally takes months. It is delivered just seven days before the congressional vote. Now, aluminum tubes are interesting, and I know there's controversy associated with it. In my judgment, the CIA director, George Tenet, had become a political spokesperson for the administration. And that is not the role of the CIA. It was too often toeing the line that the administration wanted him to toe. We think we've stumbled onto one avenue of a nuclear weapons program. There's no question that uh, there were erroneous judgments in, in that national intelligence estimate. The purpose was uh, to sell a policy initiative, which was to go to war against Iraq. The 90-page classified NIE asserts that Saddam is actively pursuing his WMD program. It cites the debatable intelligence on aluminum tubes, the yellow cake uranium purchase, and mobile weapons labs. But deep inside that thick document are strongly worded dissents that argue the evidence is weak, even wrong. The NIE is sent over to Congress. It's kept in a classified vault. And as far as we can tell, only about a half a dozen senators actually read it. Had they done so, they would have seen that it was filled with dissents. If I'd read the national uh, intelligence estimate on Iraq, I probably would have been, I've done myself a favor uh, by being better informed 
on the intelligence rather than listening to the administration. As a congressional resolution to authorize war is put to a vote, most Republicans stand solidly behind President Bush. The forces of freedom are on the march, and terrorists will find no safe harbor in this world. Democrats are deeply divided. It is wrong for Congress to declare war against Iraq now before we have exhausted the alternatives. I urge senators to go down on the Capitol Mall and look at the Vietnam Memorial. We were two months out from an election, and no one, Republican, Democrat, Independent, ever wants to be viewed as weak on national security. I will vote to give the president the authority he needs. The threat of Saddam Hussein with weapons of mass destruction is real. It is a vote that puts awesome responsibility in the hands of our president. And we say to him, use these powers wisely and as a last resort. In my heart, I knew that a no to the authority for the president was the right vote but yet I was not strong enough to vote my conscience. Joint resolution is passed without objection. The vote is overwhelming. The margin is more than three to one in the Senate. It's more than two to one in the House. The president is officially given a free hand. The days of Iraq acting as an outlaw state are coming to an end. Powell walked into my office and without so much as a fairly well, he walked over the window and he said, I wonder what will happen when we put 500,000 troops into Iraq and comb the country from one end to the other and find nothing. And he turned around and walked back in his office. And I, I wrote that down on my calendar <laughs> as close to verbatim as I could because I thought that was a profound statement coming from the Secretary of State, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The march to war begins in earnest and it is Colin Powell who gets the job of selling it to the world. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. Anybody who says this was an intelligence-driven war, I believe, is mistaken. End. Stop. By the end of 2002, the U.S. military is headed to the Gulf. Congress is on board, as are British Prime Minister Tony Blair and most of the mainstream media. The stage is set for war. A new U.N. resolution has forced Iraq to submit to tough new arms inspections. But President Bush is growing impatient. The Defense Department tells him that if he's going to war, he's got to do it before the blistering desert summer. We were moving along the path of getting a good inspection going that would probably come to fruition one way or the other. But once you start military forces flowing to the extent that we did for Iraq, it's hard to pull them back. As the inevitable moves closer, President Bush re-argues the case and ups the ante with 16 infamous words in a State of the Union address. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. That would be yellow cake again. But by referring to a six-month-old British white paper, the president does an end run around a claim discredited by his own intelligence service. It wasn't a matter of lying about this or lying about that, but rather uh, through the artistry of speechwriters and case presenters, conveying an impression to the American people 
that certain things were true. It's a real sleight of hand, and I think it's kind to call that disingenuous. On the heels of the president's speech, the administration plays its ultimate trump card. It tasks Secretary of State Colin Powell, its most trusted public face, its most reluctant warrior, to make the case against Saddam at the United Nations. He's given a week to pull that presentation together. He walked in my office with a sheaf of papers in his hand, and he threw them down on my desk, and he said, that's the script of my presentation at the United Nations. Came from Vice President's office. It was junk. It was pure junk. I was in charge of putting it together. Powell and Wilkerson tear up the original 48-page script and start over with a team from the State Department and CIA. Director George Tenet suggests they base their presentation on the National Intelligence Estimate, which, unbeknownst to Powell, is a deeply flawed document. Still, he is wary. We went into a room, he slammed the door shut. He said, sit down. And he sat down. We were the only two people in the room. He looked at me and he said, this bullshit of contacts with Al-Qaeda has got to be taken out. It's bullshit. And I said, I agree with you. Let's take it out. Done. Within a half an hour, Tenet comes in and explosively about this high-level Al-Qaeda operative who's been interrogated and admitted to these contacts. Whoa. And we put it back in. That would be the dubious confession extracted from Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, the result of torture by the Egyptians. Both of us convinced ourselves that if the intelligence community believed what we were presenting, then we had to believe it, because they were the experts. I wrote part of this speech, and what I saw over the course of weeks, up until the night before he gave that speech, and in fact into the early morning, 1, 2 a.m., was... Does this fit? Is this compelling? Who can pick a hole in this? I'm going to stand in front of a billion people. What I say better be the clearest and most credible information we have. On February 5th, 2003, the moment of truth arrives. The 4,701st meeting of the Security Council is called to order. The world witnesses Colin Powell deliver the ultimate argument for war against Iraq. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. I will cite some examples and these are from human sources. I was at CIA headquarters and all of us sort of gathered around the TV in the office to watch his speech live from the UN. We have first-hand descriptions of biological weapons factories on wheels and on rails. Those would be descriptions by the discredited witness, Curveball. 
As he's talking about this and, and showing vials of white powder and so forth, I turned to a woman next to me who had followed this whole case of curveball much more closely than I. I said, what the hell is going on? And my colleagues said, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. What is this? We did not know he was in Germany. We did not know he had a code name, Curveball. We did not know that no U.S. intelligence personnel had ever interrogated him. Based on defector information, in May of 1991, Saddam Hussein had a massive clandestine nuclear weapons program that covered several different techniques to enrich uranium. That would be defector information supplied by the notoriously unreliable Ahmed Chalabi, head of the Iraqi National Congress, the self-appointed expatriate Iraqi shadow government. We talked to Chalabi on multiple occasions, and we saw that you know they were hyping uh, the type of information they put out. He is so determined that he has made repeated covert attempts to acquire high-specification aluminum tubes from 11 different countries, even after inspections resumed. Yet again, the aluminum tubes. I was incredibly disappointed when he brought out comments about the aluminum tubes. I felt betrayed as an American and a uh, scientist. I can trace the story of a senior terrorist operative telling how Iraq provided training in these weapons to al-Qaeda. Fortunately, this operative is now detained, and he has told his story. Powell is referring to Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, the same detainee the CIA labeled a fabricator. Zakawi and his infrastructure with a built-in ally. Powell takes 90 minutes to run through his persuasive litany of evidence. Much of it will turn out to be, at best, inaccurate. Thank you, Mr. President. If you look at that speech in retrospect, there's a little too much of what we think and not enough of what we don't know. There's too much certitude in the speech. That's not Secretary's Powell problem. That's on us as intelligence professionals. Secretary of State Powell set aside his personal misgivings and staked his global reputation for integrity on this one moment, selling the case for war. Though neither Powell nor anyone else from the State Department team intentionally lied, we did participate in a hoax. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. Our nation enters this conflict reluctantly, yet our purpose is sure. The conquest goes quickly, and just as quickly, a country liberated from a dictator dissolves into chaos. Freedom's untidy, and free people are free to make mistakes and commit crimes and do bad things. An administration eager to go to war fails disastrously to plan for its aftermath. And after 19 months of scouring the country, the truth about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction 
is finally revealed. There are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and there haven't been for a long time. A new report by the chief U.S. weapons inspector finds that Iraq got rid of its weapons of mass destruction shortly after the first Gulf War. I wasn't supposed to find WMD. I was supposed to find the truth. I did not fail to find WMD. I succeeded in finding the truth. You're telling us, in addition to having no WMD stocks before the war, for the reasons you gave, Saddam chose not to have those weapons. Is that correct? That is correct. Those are stunning statements. It was a terrible mistake. The CIA had said we would find stockpiles that we didn't find. It was a disaster. And you believed it was true at the time? Yes, so did they. They shouldn't have. I mean, there were a lot of people in the agency, in the community, that knew some of this information wasn't, you know, as solid as it was being presented to me. It's not just an intelligence failure. It's a failure to the very highest levels of decision-making in America. George W. Bush and Richard Bruce Cheney would have gone to war with Iraq and gotten rid of Saddam Hussein even if there wasn't any intelligence at all. It is at worst lies and deception. It is at best incompetence and lack of understanding. A lot of people who purposefully used extreme rhetoric to gin up popular support for the war, there have been no consequences for them. We sit here some eight years later 4,000 Americans lost their lives. Maybe 100,000 Iraqis lost their lives. It cost about a trillion dollars. Was it worth it? Did you give the right advice? I think I did. If you look back at the proposition we faced after 9-11 uh, with respect to Saddam Hussein, we were very concerned about the prospects of terrorists like the 9-11 crowd acquiring weapons of mass destruction, biological agent or nuclear weapon that they could use on the United States. There's no question the news media didn't do its job during the run-up to the Iraq war. Far too often, the press simply accepted these sweeping assertions by the highest officials in the government without looking for the hard evidence to support it. I was more concerned about the politics of my decision rather than what is right and what is wrong. I have prayed to God many times that he would forgive me for sending his children to die in a war that never had to happen. Was there ever any consideration of apologizing to the American people? I mean, apologizing would basically say the decision was a wrong decision, and I, I, I don't believe it was a wrong decision. And yet, here we are today in 2023, taking the opinions of the same people that massacred Americans and Iraqis has at face value. The media didn't learn its lesson. It was after this that Rachel Maddow began to change. You should observe 
and see. For those of you that are listening to people telling you, we can thwart 2030, that's their agenda. Turn them off. 2030 has already been implemented. Our nation was supposed to be sacrificed in order to set up for 2063. I've said this before, 2030 has been done. It's 2063. And you know what their focus is? Africa. And the United States of America being sacrificed by these leaders seek to just have a foothold in this new world order, which they want to epicenter in Kazakhstan and or Nigeria. Right now, the economic Western African states, the, the, the union, the economic union of these West African states is ex extremely volatile. All of them have undergone colonization. But Nigeria finding itself more centered and more influenced by Western and uh, Western, not Eastern, Western money has initiated to decimate Africa. They have decided that, no, we will listen to the UN. We will put the leaders they put in there. The United States already remember the list that I showed you, the guy saying, well, we just had a list of the countries that we need to take over, right? Yet everyone, you know, follows and beats the fucking drum of the GOP. If you saw in that documentary, you had the left aligning with the right because the right is in control, making the left look like they're not, and they're constantly at a battle, but the people pulling the strings are the fucking rhinos. It was never the Democrats. It was the rhinos pretending to be, oh, we're for America, we're for freedom. Julian Assange showed the atrocities that happened and were conducted there. It is one of the most atrocious things that you silence the people that ask questions, you silence the people that put out information. As you saw at the end of that documentary, gentleman says, I ask God for forgiveness for sending his children to a war that never had to happen. Well, ask yourself, what about Afghanistan? What about Syria? What about Benghazi? Huh? How many people allowed that to happen? How many people endorsed that? How many people let it happen? And now in Africa, they're standing up. Yes, they're standing up, but Nigeria wants to be in the center of it because they don't have the resources the others do. They want to be the epicenter. They want to be the head. And the UN has lined pockets like nobody's business. Anyone from Africa will tell you that. All you see on TV is a decimated Africa. You see the villages. They've convinced them that they have way too many people. They need to curb the population. Yet their continent is massive. They haven't even filled one-eighth of the land mass they have with people yet. But the UN wishes to move it there. And now we have a battle of West and East. And in the middle stand the Africans. And you know, I'm going to say this, and you'll probably see it down the line. The liberation of the people is happening because of President Trump. He didn't just run to save right? The United States of America, he wanted to reshape it. He 
He wanted us to understand what the issues were at hand and how we need to turn it back. But it's for the whole world. America fails. The whole world fails. And this is not an understatement. They look to us for empowerment. Do you know that one of my biggest listener bases is in Africa? Do you know that? One of my biggest listener bases is in Africa. Well, I mean, I, I don't count the Chinese because WeChat has over like a million people listening now. I, I can't, you know, even count it because they're 20% of the world's population. So I just, everybody knows China's first. But second to that is actually Africa. Africa. The Africans are asking questions. And when I started doing radio in Ghana, in Angola, um, and Ethiopia, in Liberia, and Eritrea about seven, eight years ago, where I was a guest, um, I would just sit and talk, basically. It was women empowerment. Like, most of that stuff is not even online. It's actually on their radio waves. Like, little dinky villages, right, that, that have you know, people <laughs> that listen to them on their little radios. I would just ask them questions, you know, like, um, you know, oh yeah, Nairobi. That was, that was like one of the best interviews on Radio Nairobi that I had, you know, where you ask the right questions and you, and you provoke them, right? I remember um, in, in 2013, I was invited to speak and it was a last minute replacement. So I, I praise the Lord for that. Where there were representatives of um, Oprah Winfrey's school thing. And I asked them, so tell me, how is that helping you? Where are all the girls going? How are they listening? How can they hear their future? How are they envisioning their future? And I just asked them questions. And have you ever tested these vaccine? Who tells you they're okay? Oh, the companies that are bringing them? Well, you just stated that there's a decrease in your population because you can't have babies. And that started right after these vaccines. Your children are having a problem with seeing and they need glasses, but they never had it. You have people that have meat intolerances. And, you know, you hardly have food. How do you build an intolerance? Could it be correlated with the experiments that they're doing? These are just questions. Now, that specific radio station never had me back because the guy was like, are you alluding? And I said, no, I'm asking a question. Have you asked those questions? Because these are your people. Have you asked those questions? And that's exactly it. People need to ask questions. And this is how you fix things. Nobody asks questions. Oh, I just want my job in my cubicle, my 2.5 children and white picket fence, paycheck, and just get my life going on. And then what? Then you die. What did you do? How did you make tomorrow better? How did you serve your fellow citizen by sitting in your cubicle or going to your manufacturing job, 2.5 children, white picket fence, paid your taxes, voted straight ticket like they told you, right? How did you contribute? Your life is bullshit. To contribute, you must make change. I know, people don't want to hear that. How did I contribute? I destroyed nations. I aided in the deaths of many. Yeah, maybe me, it was just planning out the psychological parts and gaming it out. But I had a part in that. So my imprint was an ugly one. And I decided, well, you know what? 
now that I learned all these ugly things, now that I know that this was all ugly, I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to do the best I can. The only thing I could do is just like that gentleman said, is beg for forgiveness. But something he omitted is where is he today? We should look him up and we should show him, hey, you said you felt bad. You said this was an issue. Where are you today? Are you sitting on the side of the people or are you just at your cubicle? See, that's the thing. No one will ever escape paying jaros. The coin you collect here will not come with you. But the coins that you are collecting with your noose and with your soul, oh boy, those will be cashed in and it will not be pretty. How many people are grinding and stepping on necks right now and pissing all over people saying they're important for that dollar, that coin? Let's say they die tomorrow. Where's that coin going? Absolutely fucking nowhere. How will the world remember you as someone that stepped on necks, pissed all over other people, wanting to be first, no unity, I'm the best, I'm on top, right? That's how they'll remember you. You'll just be another blip of a non-producer. In fact, you could be seen as one of the Pied Pipers leading people off the cliff. Defiance. The ultimate defiance Adam and Eve did was to bite the apple, right? Well, in order to come back to God, you've got to be defiant again. And you must be defiant against the prison you put yourself in. We are in a slave system. Think about it, you guys. You wake up in the morning and you're providing your essence to all these corporations that ease your day. You pay taxes. You raise children. You feed yourself. Everything you do is being taken and take like, like vampires. They're sucking everything from us. And in the end, you die. And what have you done? See, that's the thing. You're a consumer being consumed and not seeing it. Africans are. And now we can see who the enemy is. Nigeria, get your shit together. Stop aligning with the UN because they will devour you like they did everybody else. Check this out. This is really bad. As the country marks its Independence Day, protesters waved Russian flags as they demanded the immediate withdrawal of French troops stationed in Niger. Western countries, as well as several of Niger's neighbors, have condemned the recent coup. The West African regional group ECOWAS has imposed tough economic sanctions and is threatening military action. Neighboring Nigeria has also pushed up the pressure by cutting off power. And now coup leader Abdora Hamane Shiani used an Independence Day address to condemn the threats of military intervention. What has particularly surprised Nigerians is the statement from the government of the partner country threatening Niger with the use of force to protect its citizens, diplomatic representation and interests in Niger, even though they have never been subjected to any threat. How can a question of maintaining order following peaceful street demonstrations provoke such an excessive reaction from political authorities at the highest level? 
At this point, one can rightly wonder whether it is just and humane for a government to order the use of military force against the Nigerian population to protect its own citizens. Let's bring in West Africa correspondent Olisa Chukuma, who is covering this from neighboring Nigeria. Olisa, we just heard there Niger's self-declared coup leader sounding like he's not planning on backing down. How serious could a conflict become, even militarily perhaps, with West Africa's regional bloc ECOWAS? Is it unavoidable at this point? Well, Sarah, uh, perhaps uh, it is in some diplomatic sense, because uh, though uh, the self-appointed coup leader in Niger right now is not backing down, he's talking tough. Uh, there are negotiations, uh, simultaneous negotiations going uh, down in the country with uh, delegations uh, from ECOWAS, led by a former Nigerian uh, military uh, head of state himself, uh, there alongside the Sultan, also there, you know, in the country to see what they can mediate. While at the same time, ECOWAS uh, chiefs, uh, defense chiefs, are also in Nigeria's capital Abuja, also looking at what options that they may have, which uh, indications suggest that uh, military intervention might be the last option. So uh, it is quite avoidable if they follow the diplomatic route, although we can also say that uh, while well, you have that on one hand, on the other hand, you have the number two man of the junta currently now in Mali. Uh, speaking with the Malian, you know, junta regime there. So you're, so you're asking that it looks like both Niger and ECOWAS are exploring all forms of support that they can and they have on their table at their disposal. But hopefully we will be avoidable to avoid, uh, it will be good to avoid violence. We've been hearing about some protests, some demonstrations um, taking place amid what is Independence Day today in Niger, which marks the nation's independence from France back in 1960. What's expected? How ironic, you have to say, uh, Sarah, you know, just one week after the coup again, and now they have uh, Independence Day. Well, uh, protests have begun, demonstrations have begun, uh, although not as violent, we're expecting not to be as violent as we saw uh, last week when, you know, French uh, embassy and, uh, was attacked and, and uh, vehicles and stuff were burned. But we hope it's going to be a peaceful demonstration. They will mark uh, they are in the Independence Day uh, in the capital. There will be civil societies in the country. I've called for people to come out and demonstrate. Uh, but there's also the whole issue of, you know, waving the Russian flag, which uh, also raises the flag. I have more eyebrows because if this is supposed to be uh, the celebration and marking up their independence, then we're supposed to see Nigerian flags rather than, you know, Russian flag and uh, anti-French sentiment. So we so how many of you realize that that Russian flag being flown is probably from somebody placed there to do it so they can push a narrative? It went unseen, just one being waved, but they focus on that. Pay attention. You've seen this movie before. Only you saw it in America in a different way, right? Only you saw it in a different way. We hope it doesn't descend into that, but protests and demonstrations expected all throughout the capital Niamey today in Niger. DW West Africa correspondent Olisa Chukuma, thank you. Niger is just the latest country in Africa's unstable Sahel region to see an overthrow of its government. Here's more. Niger's status as one of the few democracies in the Western Sahel appears to be going up in smoke. The African nation adds its name to a list of countries in the region that have witnessed coups in recent years. Niger joins neighboring Mali, which saw the military stage a mutiny in 2020. In 2021, a second coup took place there, 
That same year, Guinea and Chad also witnessed their leaders being overthrown. In Burkina Faso, there were two coups in 2022. The instability caused in large part by militant Islamist groups has caused particular concern to democracies across the region and especially to those in the bloc of countries that form part of the economic community of West African states or ECOWAS. Anchored by Africa's most populated country, Nigeria. Now let me show you how my little plan here was um, kind of changed. So as you can see, they created their own economic union as France took a backseat. We saw in Lebanon and Libya, well, Lebanon mostly, how upset they were when France wanted to enter Q France. And they were like, no, after the implosion, if you remember. Now, that was the first step. Creating ECOWAS was to assist them in creating an African union, almost like the European Union. Because then once the nations forfeit their rights and they have all these agreements in place, it's a lot easier to come in and say, just make a global one and we'll have global leaders that oversee it. And suddenly the people have no voice. This is the tipping point for Africa. This, this period of time, the next 10 years is the tipping point because they have the right to maintain their independence or succumb under the facade of independence as an African Union and play into the 2063 agenda. So again, this is where you're gonna see pushes and pulls. This is where you're gonna see narratives of racism they can't use because they're all black. <laughs> um, so what they're gonna use is Islamic terrorism, Christian terrorism, whatever it is, that can actually drive this. So just so that you understand how you get nations to be in the position that we are as a nation and to be in the position like all the European states, they're no longer nations, are. They give them this potential, potential, uh, how could I say, identity. Oh yeah, you're still independent. But yet all their economy, their imports and exports, their their laws, their criminal laws, are then governed by a union. And then that union is way too small. So let's get into the bigger one. And this is where it all starts. You're watching bubble collapse, right? This is where you insert the confusion. And so now we have independent nations coming forward demanding independence, right? They demand the independence. And then once they garner the independence with push and pull, if they can overcome that, by calling out those that are around them, right? If they can command that, that would be fantastic. But in order to do that, they need support. And if the West is not providing the support, but actually pushing them over the brink, and the East is like, well, regardless of how it is, we already own all, most of the infrastructure. The UN just gave us UN peacekeeping deals in Africa because they can't come in here because they'll be slaughtered. Um, we're cool. So the Chinese, like I said always, sit back and watch. They just help, <laughs> help while helping themselves, right? But stay neutral-ish, right? So here's where Africa waits their fate in the next decade, the next decade, which is will Traore stand by his values and 
shut his borders down and be a super nationalist that everyone's going to call fascism, of course, because this is, you should let everybody in. You should be trading with everybody. You shouldn't be doing your resources and selling us gold like you want, but it's our gold. Nope. It's the whole world's gold. Watch, watch and learn because this is exactly how it happens. And so Tarari has to stay there, not, not be an extreme nationalist, but be a very good politician and understand that they will convince him that the next step is to join a global frontier. Your nation will be doing this. You will be fantastic. You will be fabulous. Kind of like the way they sold it to the nation states in Europe. Hey, Italy, we will sell the shit out of your mozzarella. Hey, Greece, your olive oil will be everywhere. And then when they joined, they were like, hey, you, Greek, that has uh, olive trees, uh, we'll give you money. You're going to tear that down and make strawberries. And they're like, no, we've been making olives for like forever. Yeah, those are the rules. We set them. Hey, fishermen in England, I know you've been fishing there for, you know, generations, but the EU says that, that now that, that water belongs to Denmark. The fuck are you talking about? That shit's right off our coast. Yeah, but see, this is what the economic union says. Now you're going to see how it works step by step. You are seeing the defiance of those that are standing firm because they stood firm in Europe. If you look back, they did. But then the IMF bird lady Lagarde, who used to work in DC, then became the minister of finance somehow, somehow out of freaking nowhere, got these financial records from Swiss banks that are super secret, right? called the Lagarde papers. You should see it. And blackmailed nations to their knees, jailed government officials claiming money laundering. Half of the accounts they showcased didn't even exist. But how are you going to prove that when all of the media and all of the courts and all of these financial experts and agencies and law enforcement and Interpol are telling the world that it is such. But that's not my account. No, nope, it is. Look, your name, this, that. You got money from that. Yeah, uh, that was a campaign contribution. I didn't know it was my account. Mm -hmm, liar, jail. And this is how they toppled Europe. With lies and blackmail and facades. And here they come into Africa. The Western nations came in to topple the Middle East, because that's energy, tried to get a foothold because they re resisted. Gaddafi resisted. We came, we saw, he died. Ha ha ha. Saddam resisted. Dead. Anyone that's resisted. Dead. So let's get to um, Soleimani. Soleimani. <sighs> How much you want to make a bet? He and Obama had great conversations together. How much you want to bet? He was one of the assets from the days of yore where Barack Hussein Obama's mom and Peter Strzok Sr., Peter Strzok's daddy, right, went in there and installed the regime that they had in there. Oh, yeah? Bet me. Bet me. See, you are witnessing right now in front of your eyes what has happened to Western nations in Africa. And boy, it's not going to be pretty. Egypt needs to stand firm to Egyptians because that's coming. There's going to be a battle for the Nile. They want to suffocate the Ethiopians. 
with Erd Erdogan out of the picture. It's extremely volatile. Well, he's not out of the picture yet. But I told you, it all kicks off. When Africa is in focus. The Americas are kind of like that war that's happening. We have no idea what's going on. This is, we are living in the times of the fall of Babel, the Tower of Babel. No one knows what's true and what's false. Nothing. But you just know it in your gut. And right now, the problem that we have is that they're presenting the world on a platter to nations that are thirsty. And they believe they're smarter. But this war right now, this defiance right now, was already predicted by them. And this, the next 24 months, and how other nations respond, will tell you where this is going. Will they succeed or not? But how will we know what's going on in Africa? In the next 24 months, we only have news or whatever. Don't worry. They can't hide the truth. But you know how you're going to know? On how the U.S. stands. See, the United States of America was an experiment conducted to show that self-governance can exist. Defiance is in the blood of every American, and Americans have forgotten that completely. Instead, we're all on our knees, crawling, chaining ourselves voluntarily. We proclaim our Bill of Rights on oh, the Fourth Amendment. Fuck that. No one enforces that shit. It's dead. We need actual case law. There is no Fourth Amendment. We need good judges. Stop. We need dirty judges. You know, the, the judge, as I said earlier in my show, that has been assigned to Trump's case, it's going to be a big party. Like I said, all you need to see is where she went to school, who she ran with. And all we need to do is file the appropriate things. But you know what? I think one more indictment will seal Trump's return. One more. Come on, Georgia. Give it to us. Because we're waiting. It's like Panthers. We're sitting out there on the fringes. Oh, no one's listening. That's right. We can skew numbers. And we're sitting there and we're watching. And not only that, we now own some of your talking heads that amplify the shit you spew. And that way, everyone's like, oh, my God, we're losing. If someone's telling you, the fix is in, turn them off. We already knew that. We already knew that. We just need to sit in the dark waiting, you know, kind of like Panthers. Grrr. We're just watching. Grrr. <laughs> just watching. And, you know, drawing from something that i saw from an account that i follow i don't know if all of you follow entheos or entheos shine great team they posted uh you know the mongoose said on the menu is a snake now for those of you that don't know a mongoose is a very small carnivorous mammal it belongs to um the um, herpistidae family the family is composed of 33 species that includes meerkats, cassimancies. Mongooses are native uh, to parts of Asia, Africa, and Southern Europe, although some species have been introduced in other parts of the world. Now, mongooses are known for their agility. They have a long body. They have like a wedge-type head. 
and their fur can be gray, brown, reddish, and they have short legs with five toes on each foot. Some of them also have a bushy tail, while others have a tail that tapers. It's like joggers. You either have the wide leg joggers or the tapered ones, right? Now, the most fascinating aspects of a mongoose is their agility and their quickness. They have a long body, right? Like we said. But they're also able to hunt venomous snakes. See, hunting a snake is easy. You know, the first time I actually killed a snake, I didn't know how simple it was. All you have to do is grab it by the neck, put your thumb on its head, and snap dead. So they have an exceptional ability to hunt venomous snakes. They have specialized acetylcholine receptors that make them resistant to snake venom, almost like those that have pure and utter faith in themselves and trusting their gut. No matter how much venom is thrown in your face, though you may feel troubled, you're actually immune from that venom. And they're known for their ability to kill and eat those snakes. Though, though their diet isn't all snakes, though, of course, right? They eat insects, rodents, birds, eggs, depending on whatever. And lettuce, if you give them, right? Whatever. Now, mongooses are indeed, as we know, known for their exceptional ability to eat venomous snakes. And it's the most fascinating aspect of their behavior. When a mongoose encounters a snake, it uses its speed and agility, sometimes separate. Sometimes it uses its agility to evade. Sometimes it's just pure speed. And it does that to dodge the snake's strikes. But when it counterattacks, it counterattacks by biting the snake's head or neck. And with the teeth that the mongoose has, it delivers the fatal bite. It's almost like it puts it around its hand, kind of like if you make a fist and just imagine where your thumb would be, the head sits and it's done. I thought that was quite interesting because if you think about it, yes, everything in our nation is about speed and agility. And agility is a word that people like to say, oh, you're flexible. It's actually that you're malleable. And you could just go either way. You can go with the flow. You can kick back and let the waves take you. But when you decide, you strike. That's how I see it. And, you know, I, I actually, when I saw that word on their um, post, it reminded me of my friend named John. John is a Greek-American. Uh, he lives in Greece. He's all into yoga now. And uh, his nickname is Mongoose. Um, because he, he would be on his mongoose BMX bike. It was like his thing when he was a kid. And then I thought to myself, mongoose bikes. Hmm. And just think about that for a second and let that sit. And we'll revisit that in a little bit. Mongoose bicycles, BMX, bikes, riding a bike, everything riding a bike. Now, continuing on riding a bike, how do the Africans ride through this? How do they go brother against brother? Hmm? Because they're not going to sit down. They've started asking questions. And it's up to the people of the surrounding nations to start asking questions too. And turning off the news and asking questions too. But you know why it's harder in Africa? Because a lot of them don't have access to electricity. 
a lot of them don't have access to information. They have very little access. And that was all by design to ensure that the final plan, the final seal was done in 2063. So once again, if anyone tells you we need to have by 2030, it's been done. Europe has fallen. They can be liberated in the future, but they're done. They are done. The United States is the last member state to fall or rise. And with the rise of the United States, there's going to be a pacification of the East. And Africa will be able to garner their cojones. Now, while many might see it as a threat to their own nation, considering Africa is very underreported in size, right? Remember the maps? And in population and in resources. And they do not trust anyone outside of the African nation. In fact, those of you that know Africans and are Africans know the people they hate the most isn't the white man. It's the black American because they consider them stupid as fuck. And not because of a racial thing, but because they're incompetent and because they're not garnering to opportunities they have that they don't. Why do I say that? Well, listen carefully to what is said now. Nigeria, ECOWAS also serves as a peacekeeping force. During times of political instability and unrest, member states send joint military forces to intervene. But the most potent tool in the ECOWAS arsenal is its ability to suspend member states from its economic grouping. Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso and now Niger have all been suspended following coups. Niger's junta has been given an ultimatum by ECOWAS too. It has threatened the possible use of force. There are fears that any military intervention in Niger by ECOWAS could descend into a full-scale war in the region with Mali and Burkina Faso both warning they would defend their fellow coup leaders. And the effectiveness of an ECOWAS force has been questioned by experts who say adequate funding is required if it were to have a chance of succeeding. Plus, it could lead to a worsening of an already dire humanitarian crisis in the region. And we are joined now by Kabir Adamu. He is with us from Abuja. He is a security analyst with Beacon Consulting. Welcome to the program and thank you so much for joining us. We just saw in that report power had been seized in Mali, Burkina Faso, now Niger. Why have governments in the Sahel been so vulnerable to coups? Um, good morning, um, Sarah. So essentially, it's a question of legitimacy. Um, the way they emerged um, during, you know, elections. So that that also speaks about the um, authenticity and the, the 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 electoral process in most African countries, um, and in this instance, in in West African countries, where the outcome of the elections are questioned, uh, and then of course governance where governance does not necessarily translate to meeting the needs and desires of the people. And then we can also extend it to the entire democratic system, how that system has not been able to address the needs um, and to meet the interests of the people. Um, sadly, 
we should also speak about the post-colonial legacies that countries like France have led, the system that France maintained in, in West Africa and other African countries has seen France very instrumental in the, these three components that I've mentioned, in governance, in elections. And sadly, uh, because the effect is not being felt by the people, they most times question the legitimacy of those government and the result is the coup that we're seeing. Um, it's been said and, and speculated that Russia might be seeing an opportunity here um, for increased influence. How vulnerable is Niger to falling under more influence from Russia and its Wagner mercenary group? So, um, extremely vulnerable. Niger is dependent on foreign aid to meet its basic needs. And um, if uh, the foreign aid coming from, you know, countries in, in um, the West, Western countries, the U.S., uh, the EU as a bloc, and then um, bilateral ones from France and even Germany as an example, um, if that is cut off, Nigerian government cannot survive on its own. And so it would look towards countries like Russia. Um, now, the argument is Russia is facing its own sanctions as a result of its invasion of Ukraine. So how much can it extend to countries like Niger? It's also increasingly desirous of maintaining a good relationship with a partner like Nigeria, as an example. And Nigeria is the regional hegemon in ECOWAS. Russia would not want to do anything to destabilize that relationship. So I see Russia playing more of a stabilizing role than necessarily a destabilizing role. Um, it would be interested in forming some form of relationship with Niger, but not at the detriment of its relationship with a country like Nigeria. Meantime, we've been seeing European countries evacuating their citizens. Um, we've been seeing West Africa's regional bloc, ECOWAS, imposing sanctions, Nigeria cutting electricity supply, foreign aid being cut, etc. I mean, this is, this is really a lot of pressure um, when we talk about, you know, what the situation that the coup leaders will be left with. Can they withstand that pressure? So that depends on the pressure. Pressure from outside nations, pressure. Pressure to do as the global conglomerate says, pressure. But if you remember, this happened now, a week after Russia said, I'll give you food if they cut you off. China is in charge of their power. I'll give you power if they cut you off. You deserve to be independent. Remember, the people that want to dominate you, and I'm not talking about Russia, talking about China, China, will give you the tools to liberate yourself so that you not only fear them, but you adore them at the same time. It's a beautiful balance. They're exceptionally intelligent. This is why they have been here and people pay attention. The Great Wall was not to keep people out. It was to keep people in, if you pay attention, but I digress. So think of it. Here come all the other nations. Nope, you're not allowed to do that. Who says who? This is our country. Get the fuck out of here. I'm doing my business. Mind yours. We're just trading. I give you rice, you give me beef, that's it. If, if you're giving me beef and I'm not paying for it and I'm not giving you rice, then we could talk. Other than that, keep your mouth shut. Mind your business. I do what's good for my country. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Current geopolitics. Um, one of what kind of worries me uh, when two days ago, the military junta announced the reopening of borders with some countries, it included Algeria. And that speaks a lot, because if a country like Algeria does not support this international stand, then it, it leaves 
um, the the junta some opportunity really um, in the terms that that's because Algeria has all of the diamonds and they're tired of the French and the British and the Germans coming in and telling them what to do. The EU, just so you guys understand, has collapsed. The European nations are dead in the water. They have no choice. And everything was unfolding. I'd been talking about it for years. Like, are you okay with them curtailing your accounts? Hey, they're telling you checks are no longer allowed. Everything must be digital. Hey, you need a digital ID. Hey, they're opening up your borders for everyone. Hey, they're giving you free education. Hey, pay attention to what's going on. They're blurring your borders. Hey, 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 hey. Here's COVID. Everybody, you're locked in your house. Oh, you don't have weapons? Tough shit. We do. You don't listen? That's it. They're done. Now, what can be done in Europe? Well, they can follow suit if America survives. Other than that, 2063, red carpet rollout. And this all depends on America. Save America, save the world. That's a big statement, but you'll see how true it is. Nigeria is um, an opening to the not not African um, corridor, as it were, and then by by extension to Russia as well. So a lot will depend on how ECOWAS as a block, and then of course the international community is able to get the support of blocks in, in North Africa, the um, Arab countries as an example, um, countries like Turkey, and then more importantly, Russia and, and China. Now, if that support is gotten, then yes, the pressure will be enormous on the military junta. If, however, the bloc and the world um, is not able to get the support of this country that I've mentioned, then the pressure will ease on the military junta. Yes, the pressure will ease. Russia, you see how he mentioned Turkey? Turkey, right? They're all really myth about that. That's okay. Because even the people that want dominion over you will tell you exactly what you want to hear and help you get to the point that you believe you're free. And then at the toughest part, you know, there'll be sanctions and stuff. No, sorry, we have embargoes on weapons. It's not going to happen anytime now. They need to be liberated first so that way they can capture them, right? That's, that's the U.S. standard. <laughs> they learned it from somewhere, of course. So this is why it's important. It is very, very important. Save America, save the world. Why? The whole world consumes American products. America has always been at the center of everything. And this is how you educate. That's all. Seven nation army of bad guys, good guys. You be the judge. The media now is completely obsolete. No one cares. Did you see it yourself? No. Then how do you know it's true? Is it sourced through something that you saw in your hands? No. Do they have more power over you? How are you the underdog? Yeah, you're not. And neither are the Africans. They have more power than anyone. And the minute they start waking up, they need to know we're on their side. And we are. You'll see how this plays out. Because in the end, well, we already know how the story ends. In the end, God always wins. And it's not just a statement, mm. but for now, you must enjoy the show. Remember, you're a participant. Now, are you a passive one or an active one? Well, that's up to you. God bless. So